This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, you've heard it repeated and said by many, including Ray Donovan, not the Showtime character played by Lee Schreiber, but the former Reagan cabinet official. Where do I go to get my reputation back? So often, I have seen people accused of crimes, sometimes not even charged. Sometimes they're indicted and the charges are dropped. Sometimes they are charged and sometimes uh, they go to trial and they're found not guilty. Or sometimes uh, there's just rumors. And yet these people's reputations are irreparably smeared and scarred. And I have to tell you, when the Me Too movement first gained, started gaining steam, and we saw a lot of really awful people be publicly called on the carpet for the misconduct that they were currently involved in or that they were previously involved in, I said, okay, that's great. I'm glad that person is no longer in a position to harass women or to uh, sexually abuse people, and not just women. Um, Some cases allege very serious misconduct of young men as well. Uh, But every day... It was almost like I was on this morbid game show. Do you remember what it was like four years ago, pre-COVID? Try to put yourself in a pre-COVID mentality. Four or five years ago, it was like you'd spin the wheel. And every day was, who is going to be me too today? And I would watch this. And I said so publicly at the time. And I said, this is really dangerous. We've gone from a place where people who've gotten away with sexual sexual misconduct and other misconduct are being held accountable to now all you have to do is accuse somebody of something and that's as good as a conviction. That's as good as a career ending. And I said, look, we are now in an era of trial by media. How about some evidence before we actually start costing people their jobs, their reputations, printing their names in the paper as uh, sexual abusers. And I was one of the few voices. Since then, I get the sense that there's been a little bit of a backlash to the convict first, end career first, ask questions later mentality. And so often... Those of us that raised questions about the allegations against whatever, you pick the boldface name of your choice. We were told the most important mantra was believe all women. Well, five days ago, there was a very, very important jury verdict. And I'm curious if this is going to be a harbinger of things to come. A jury awarded a former Clemson student 
falsely accused of sexual misconduct. Five point three million dollars on defamation and civil conspiracy claims. Now, this case, which I don't know, did you hear about this case anywhere else? I really had to dig to find this case. But this case has implications for the future of Title IX. A South Carolina jury awarded a former Clemson student $5.3 million. This is the result of a five-year legal battle stemming from unfounded charges of sexual misconduct in 2015. This lawsuit was against three individuals, not Clemson, but campuses across the country took note of this. Uh, Peter Lake, who's a, a law professor, said that's a chilling award and i wonder if this will be chilling will this cause campuses accusers and the media to think twice before dragging someone's name through the mud who's been accused of sexual harassment or sexual misconduct uh peter lake told uh inside higher ed that's a publication that covers higher education That kind of award, if it stands and isn't remitted in some way, is very impactful on college business and insurance operations. I would assume that every college in South Carolina is meeting this week to talk about the implications of this and what's going to start happening if you get more of these verdicts is more Title IX systems will be literally supervised by attorneys. Colleges will have teams of lawyers. So Andrew Pampu is the fellow here that filed this lawsuit back in 2017. He alleged that his classmates at Clemson, Colin Gahagan and Aaron Wingo, as well as Wingo's father, David, sought to defame, harass, abuse, and punish him following a consensual sexual encounter between he and Aaron Wingo in 2015 when they were both first-year students. After the encounter... Erin Wingo filed a Title IX complaint against Pampu, alleging that she had been sexually assaulted while under the influence of alcohol. That's the thing. If you have a a consensual sexual encounter with someone, especially if it's a man and a woman, if you're a man and you have a sexually consensual sexual encounter with someone and they say it wasn't consensual, don't you find yourself immediately on the defensive? How do you do that? Are you supposed to be like Larry David and get them to sign a form beforehand? But according to Pampu's complaint, Wingo had been pursuing him and initiated the sexual contact the night in question, which happened to be his birthday, uh, October 25th. Friends reported that Wingo was not intoxicated, and she remembered the encounter well enough the next morning to text Pampu and say, don't tell Colin Gay again her on-again, off-again boyfriend, what happened? It was only after Gagan found out about their hookup that Wingo claimed she had been incapacitated at the time. Gagan reportedly told her, if you don't remember, then it's rape. The two began calling Pampu a rapist to their friends. Clampson's investigation found Pampu guilty of sexual misconduct and suspended him for one semester. When he appealed, his suspension was extended another 12 months. How's that for due process? In the higher education system. While the appeal was pending, David Wingo sent a letter to Pampu's fraternity, Phi Data Theta, and advising the national headquarters of the alleged misconduct and pending disciplinary action in clear violation 
of the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Pampu was subsequently expelled from the fraternity, suspended from school for a year, expelled from his fraternity. Then January of 2017, Gagan texted, that's the boyfriend here, Gagan texted Pampu, admitted he had conspired with Erin Wingo on the false rape charge and acknowledged that she had, in fact, pursued him romantically. Quote, you're innocent. I lied in that hearing. And it, Aaron wanted to have sex that night, he wrote. Pampu sued Glemson for violations of Title IX and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, settling with the university in 2019 for undisclosed sum and the removal of the disciplinary citation. The jury trial that concluded last week included the deposition of 23 witnesses approximately 10,000 pages of documents, and 14 discovery months. The truth prevailed here. And according to Pampu's lawyer, the jury sent a message that our society doesn't condone making false allegations of sexual assault, accusing someone of criminal activity when that did not, in fact, occur. Because it can be damaging and it can lead to irreparable damages it's hard to undo. Uh, the lawyer for the defendants, she said the case is not closed. So who knows? Maybe they'll appeal. So my question for you is, do you think this will make people that aren't victims of sexual abuse less likely to come forward and claim that they were? Additionally, on the other hand, Do you think that this may make some people, women especially, who are victims of sexual abuse or sexual misconduct, do you think that this could make them less likely to come forward for fear that they themselves might have to get a lawyer and uh, deal with a lawsuit from their accuser because they're not confident that they can prove their case? What do you think? What do you think the implications of this are? 800-848-9222. Now, this decision is apparently the largest ever awarded to a falsely accused student in a date rape proceeding. This is likely to encourage others, at least in academia, who've been falsely accused to sue. And it's likely, I think, all over the country, I don't think this is limited to South Carolina, I think it's likely that you're going to see universities start providing more protections for the accused in Title IX proceedings. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's crazy what we've been seeing these last five or six years where if you're accused, you're as good as finished. And I really think that I've been waiting for the rubber band to snap back, for society not to immediately jump on someone who's accused of something by someone. What do you think this portends for the future? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is a huge verdict, and I think this is going to send a strong message to other colleges to provide protection to the accused. And other legal scholars have said the same thing. John Bonzoff, who's a a professor of public interest law at George Washington University, has said that. And he suggested that the admonition to always believe women – Accusing men of rape is incorrect and unfair. And I agree with him. I agree with him. Since there have been many instances where female college students have falsely accused male students of rape. No class of complainants 
in any legal proceeding, including women, children, police, attorneys, law professors, prosecutors, radio talk show hosts, you name it, should always be believed. Nobody should always be believed and not have their testimony subject to being tested in a proceeding with all the evidence. So I'm so done hearing believe all blank. I don't care who the blank is. Women, men, blacks, whites, whomever. Gays, straights, Asians, doesn't matter to me. Nobody should have an automatic right to be believed. I think if you accuse somebody of something, you should have an automatic right to be listened to, to be heard. But nobody should get convicted based on your your word. And I am thrilled at this verdict, and I hope that he gets a letter of apology from that fraternity that expelled him as well. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. John Bonzoff said in a statement that he put out, the proper admonition should be don't disbelieve women, meaning that unlike all too often in the past, their claims should not automatically be doubted or dismissed. I agree with that. I agree with that. Tell me what you think. 800-848-WABC. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk with Scott Ritter. If the name Scott Ritter sounds familiar, it's because he worked with uh, General Schwarzkopf in Iraq. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. I believe he's done some weapons inspection in the Soviet Union as well. He's also the author of the book Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. We're going to get into this Russia-Ukraine situation and uh, his take on these very serious latest allegations coming out of Mariupol, coming out of Bucha, which alleges that Russia was responsible for thousands, in one instance, ten, one estimate, 10,000 civilian deaths. And there was even one allegation that there might have been chemical weapons used, which would be, for many people, a game changer. So I'm going to ask him about that. And a little bit later, um, gas prices are on everybody's mind. There's been a little bit of a break this week, but uh, gas prices are still a lot higher than they were a year ago, certainly higher than they were two years ago. We're going to talk with uh, a woman that knows gas prices and energy prices better than anybody Ellen Wald. Uh, she knows about the economics of it. She knows about the geopolitics of it. And I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with her. We'll take your calls at 800-848-WABC. Coming up next hour, we will read through your best and worst letters. Uh, if you want uh, an email read on the air, we'll try and squeeze it in. All you have to do is be topical. Ideally, keep it pithy. And email me at frank.morano. That's frank.morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank Morano at WABCRadio.com. We got a lot of other stuff we're going to get to you, um, get to it in the course of the next four hours as well. Taking you all the way until five o'clock. And just a reminder, I'm not going to be here on Friday. Curtis Lee was going to be here I'm taking off for Good Friday. And uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, a, sort of a three-day weekend. It's not really a three-day weekend because I do work Sunday mornings with John Katsimatidis, but it's it's almost like a three-day weekend. 800-848-9222. Sean is in Yonkers. Hello. Hi, Frank. I call, usually call on other mm -hmm. subjects, but the problem 
is that uh, prosecutors in this country have absolute immunity from prosecution for prosecutorial misconduct. And this leads to them bringing cases to the grand jury that they now have absolutely no validity because their only goal is to win all cases at all costs and not to discover the truth. Well, I mean, again, this was he never ended up going uh, before a criminal trial here. Uh, This was all university wise. But still, even though he never went to jail or anything, the fact that he was expelled from a fraternity and found himself, um, you know, found himself suspended for a year, I think is a pretty stiff penalty for a college student. I think one that was completely inappropriate. All right. We'll talk with Scott Ritter about the Russia Ukraine situation straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano. 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Anywhere you turn, uh, we're seeing a lot of disturbing allegations coming out of Ukraine as this war between Russia and Ukraine continues to uh, drag on a lot of people losing their lives, a lot of people losing their homes. Ukraine's president said Russian troops retreating from the north left thousands of mines in a deliberate deliberate act that he considered a war crime. Ukraine is investigating some 5,800 cases of alleged Russian war crimes. Uh, and we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, a lot of disturbing images and hearing a lot of disturbing things coming out of Ukraine, including uh, the very serious accusation that uh, there could have been thousands of civilians targeted in Ukraine. A man who knows a thing or two about chemical weapons and knows a thing or two about war crimes is Scott Ritter. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and U.N.'s weapons inspector in Iraq, I believe in the Soviet Union as well. He's also the author of the book Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, uh, I, I think a lot of folks listening are probably familiar with your record in public life. But uh, just so folks who may not be as familiar may not remember uh, what you what role you played with General Schwarzkopf and with the U.N., can you give us sort of the Reader's Digest version of your frame of experience dealing with the U.N., with international relations and with uh, weapons of mass destruction? Well, sure. I mean, I was commissioned as a Marine Corps officer in, uh, in 1984. Um, and in 1988, uh, I was sent to the Soviet Union to uh, implement the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that was uh, signed between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, banning an entire class of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, I was actually the one of the first inspectors on the ground in the Soviet Union and uh, you know, played an important role in writing the book, so to speak, on on-site inspections in an arms control environment. I did that for two years, and uh, when that ended, I went back to the Marine Corps, got caught up in the uh, the, the Gulf War, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. I served on the uh, headquarters of uh, General Schwarzkopf, was responsible for uh, over, you know, helping um, what we call the counter-scud uh, 
effort uh, trying to interdict Iraqi Scud missile launches before they could be fired against Israel or uh, the Gulf Arab states. Uh, when that war ended, uh, I left the Marine Corps, thought I was going to get a, a nice job in the civilian world. But as uh, Al Pacino said in The Godfather, <laughs> uh, every time I try to get out, they keep dragging me back in. And uh, I ended up getting asked to go to the United Nations to help create a uh, intelligence capability to do on-site inspection in Iraq, uh, this time to get Iraqi weapons mass destruction. I did that for seven years. I resigned in 1998 uh, in protest to what I believed was the interference of the United States government and the work of the inspections program. And since that time, I've been a, uh, a critic of what I deem to be um, bad policy. It's not that I'm anti-American. I, sure. I think the role of a good American citizen is to hold uh, his or her government accountable for, you know, what they do in, in, in our name. And if the policy is bad and you have experience and you can say, you know, we should probably be doing this differently, you have a duty to speak out. I, I think so that's, that's the one I, thing that you have in, in common with all of our listeners, whether they're on the left or the right or somewhere in between, is uh, I think they would share that uh, share that belief. Now. Uh, let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation. The conventional wisdom since this war began is some version of uh, Putin is Hitler. He invented, he invaded a neighboring country, even though he didn't need to and had very little justification in doing so. And he's a madman and he is the 100 percent villain in this whole affair. Uh, do you do you agree by and large with that narrative? No, I actually take the opposite approach. Um, you know, again, I'm not here to sing, you know, Vladimir Putin's praises. Uh, he, other people can do that. I'm just a realistic, um, I have a realistic assessment of Russia in the modern age. And uh, I recognize that as early as 2007, uh, Vladimir Putin had been complaining that uh, the expansion of NATO in the aftermath of the Cold War eastward represented a threat to, to Russia's security, and that uh, Russia had been on the record telling the United States and NATO that uh, continued expansion would be a red line that uh, Russia would view uh, as an existential threat to its security. I also uh, recognize that, <clears throat> and starting in 2014, there was, a, um, there was violence taking place in the ethnic Russian-dominated region of Ukraine known as Donbass. Uh, fighting that over the course of eight years killed 14,000 um, Russian speakers and that Russia took umbrage to this. Uh, I'm not going to justify the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but what I am going to say is that from the Russian perspective, uh, they believe that they had every right under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, uh, citing preemptive collective self-defense uh, to to go into Ukraine to stop what they believed was the um, genocidal attack uh, from the Ukrainians on the, the ethnic Russians. So, you know, Russia believes that it was justified. You know, that's that's just the Russian belief. Uh, that's not Hitler-like. That's that's a country expressing its legitimate, um, you know, self-defense interests. Um, and you know, and that it'll be up to the world to decide whether or not Russia was justified to going in or not. But there's a difference between having a, a, a difference of opinion and calling somebody evil and, you know, the, the modern day equivalent of Adolf Hitler. Mm. Uh, now, we are seeing some very disturbing reports that more than 10,000 civilians, 
may have died in Russia's siege of Mariupol. That's the word from the mayor of Mariupol. A lot of reports of uh, civilian deaths in Bucha. Uh, there's a lot of charges of war crimes, and the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has indicated this is a, a genocide. What you've seen, do you believe those reports are true, number one? And two, if they are true, would that constitute either war crimes or a genocide in your judgment? I will say this, that uh, the fighting in Mariupol was uh, done in some of the the, the worst possible conditions, uh, you know, urban warfare. And if there's a civilian population that was caught up in that fighting, there's a very real chance that they suffered extensive casualties. So I'm not um, I'm not going to challenge uh, any assertion of, you know, thousands, even up to 10,000 dead. That is absolutely a possibility. Um and the same thing throughout Ukraine. The uh, you know the reality is in modern warfare, um, civilians pay a price. The the you know in, in the history of modern war, I think that they've shown that you know, the ratio of uh, civilian dead to combatant dead is generally one to one. And we know that the Ukrainians have suffered close to twenty thousand dead soldiers, <clears throat> and the Russians have suffered thousands of dead of their own. So it would not be surprising to me if there were over twenty thousand dead Ukrainian civilians uh, so far because of the fighting. Now, whether this con- these deaths constitute a war crime or not is dependent upon the individual circumstances uh, behind their death. Uh, civilians die in war. That's just a sad reality of war. It's why war is a tragedy and should be avoided at all costs. But uh, the fact that a civilian dies does not automatically constitute a war crime. There has to be an intent on the part of the perpetrator to deliberately target a civilian or civilian property in a manner which has zero military relevance. That means that the intent is from the start to do harm to a civilian or, or a civilian target. And you know, if the Ukrainians are going to make an allegation that this was the case, then it should be investigated. Uh, every, every allegation should be investigated. But I will say that we know the Washington Post itself has published uh, that the Ukrainians have decided to fight in areas where there are civilians. The Ukrainians have refused to evacuate civilians from these areas as they are required by international law. And therefore, the Ukrainians, this is the Washington Post, the Ukrainians have created de facto human shields. Mm. So if a civilian is in an apartment complex and the Ukrainians have put military objects in that apartment complex, that apartment complex is now a legitimate target of war. And any civilian casualties are the tragic consequences of this. And I would say that civilian deaths in Mariupol probably fall under um, the category of the Ukrainians using civilians as human shields more than Russia deliberately targeting Ukrainian civilians. We're also hearing very disturbing reports from Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian officials that have now accused Russia of dropping chemical weapons on the city of Mariupol, causing troops and civilians alike to develop respiratory illness. Uh, The Azaz Regiment, which is a unit of the National Guard of Ukraine, posted to Telegram yesterday, 
Russian occupation forces used a poisonous substance of unknown origin against Ukrainian military and civilians in the city of Mariupol, which was dropped from an enemy unmanned aerial vehicle. The victims have respiratory failure and vestibulo attactic syndrome. As someone that knows about Russia and that knows about chemical weapons, what's your view? Do you believe that this occurred? Do you believe the Russians are now using chemical weapons in Ukraine? The use of chemical weapons would be a, a, a violation of international law. Russia is a signatory to the Chemical Weapons Convention, and Russia has certified that it has uh, eliminated all of its uh, stockpiles of chemical weapons, that it no longer possesses them, and the international community has certified Russia to be compliant in this regard. So if Russia is using chemical weapons, it is a, a violation of international law, and it would put Russia on the wrong side of history. So you have to ask yourself, what would be required um, on the ground? What is the gain that Russia would get on the ground to justify taking this risk? And my, my, my suggestion is that there's nothing in Mariupol uh, that's worth this risk. We're literally talking about the final mopping up of several thousand remnant forces who have dug themselves into an industrial area and are being reduced uh, through brutal fighting by uh, Ru- Russian forces. Um, I-, I just don't believe this. This unit, the Azov Battalion, is more than just a nationalist uh, territorial battalion of the Ukrainian army. It's a unit that has a history of affiliation with neo-Nazi ideology and has been singled out by Russia as being uh, the unit that has perpetrated the greatest crimes against the Russian speakers. So there is no love lost between the two. And I would suggest that what we're seeing here is a a desperate propaganda ploy by a unit singled out for death and destruction in their final moments of their existence. People are just tuning in. We're talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and U.N.'s weapon inspector. How would you like to see this uh, come to an end? And what role should the United States be playing at this juncture in order to bring this to an end? Uh, There are those like Zelensky that not only want a lot more military aid, but want the establishment of a no-fly zone. What say you? How do you think this all comes to an end for Ukraine, for Russia and for the United States? Well, I mean, there's 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 two questions. How would I like to see it end right now? Um, Let's just understand that the people that are paying the price for this war are the citizens of Ukraine. Millions of them have been made homeless. Millions are refugees. Hundreds of thousands have, uh, have, have suffered the direct consequences of this conflict, with tens of thousands possibly dead. And the longer this war goes on, the longer these innocent Ukrainian civilians are going to suffer. And so I, would, I wish this war had never started, and uh, I would love for this war to end right now that, so that there has to be no more suffering. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. This war is going to end when Russia achieves its stated military objectives, which are the the denazification. Russia has singled out units like the Azov Battalion that you discussed in Mariupol and others as um, you know having having embraced and and acted on this odious ideology, an ideology that. My grandfather and millions of Americans' grandfathers traveled overseas in the 1940s to eliminate that of you know, Nazi Germany. It's alive and well and living in Ukraine today, according to Russia, and they are going to eradicate it. The second is the demilitarization of Ukraine. And what that means is that even though Ukraine is not a NATO member, 
Since 2014, NATO has been training the Ukrainian military to NATO standards, and Russia views this as a threat, so they want to eliminate the NATO infrastructure that exists today in Ukraine. And those two military objectives are to achieve a third political objective, which is the neutrality of Ukraine, meaning that Ukraine will not be permitted to join NATO. Um, the United States role, I believe that the United States had a role in facilitating the conditions that led to the Russian invasion. And so right now, if the United States wants to continue the suffering of the Ukrainian people, then continue providing weapons to President Zelensky. The reality is this war is lost. Ukraine has lost this war. Um, there's going to be more fighting on the ground that will, will, will bring an end to the Ukrainian military. And it, the longer it goes, the more the Ukrainian people suffer. If the United States believes that it can uh, stop this by intervening militarily, understand a no-fly zone or any NATO troop presence on the ground in Ukraine will bring about a force-on-force -force conflict between Russia and NATO. These are two nuclear-armed entities, and uh, we increase the possibility of a nuclear conflict that may will probably not be limited to Europe, but involve a global exchange of nuclear weapons, meaning the end of the world. This is very serious stuff here. Uh, this is not a game. Um, and as tragic as the Russian invasion and ongoing fighting in Ukraine is, I believe a, a global thermonuclear war uh, would be even more tragic. Mm. Uh, at this point in time, we, we need to understand that this war in Ukraine is a reality. It's happening. And the best thing we can do is bring it to, bring it to an end. And if, unfortunately for NATO and the United States, that means that Russia will probably get its way in Ukraine. Uh, the goal here isn't to, uh, you know, allow this thing to spin out of control and, and suck everybody into global nuclear annihilation. It's to mitigate the damage that's already been done to ensure that this conflict does not spread further. On Sunday, CBS News on uh, 60 Minutes had the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, on their program, and they referred to him as a legend who stands between the Russian army and the free world. Uh, this comes on the heels of some polling last week that shows Zelensky, the most popular world leader among Americans of any world leader in the world, including uh, far more popular than, uh, than, than our own president, Joe Biden. Uh, do you think the media is making a mistake here by building up uh, Zelensky in such a manner. We've certainly seen what's happened when other people have been built up uh, by the media only to come crashing down. People like Andrew Cuomo and maybe even Anthony Fauci come to mind. Do you think that the media coverage of Zelensky does journalism a bit of a disservice? Uh, the short answer is yes, and I'll, I'll explain why. I have no uh, personal animosity towards as the president Zelensky, um, but understand this: he's not a professional politician. He, you know, he he's smart guy. He was trained as a lawyer, but he spent his life as a comedian, mm -hmm. and that's okay. I I love comedian. He was a star of a TV show in Ukraine called "A Servant of the People." Um, it, it's about a, a school teacher who becomes president of Ukraine. So he's a comedian who plays a president on TV. I've seen the show. It's a wonderful show. I, I've it's seen it too, fun. actually. It's great, actually. It's, it's a great show. And I, I just, I, I love the character. I like him as an actor. I think it's great. But this is the equivalent 
of the United States being in one of the greatest domestic crises of its time and Americans turning into the West Wing and deciding that Martin Sheen should be president of the United States. I love Martin Sheen. I think he's a great actor, and I thought he did a great job in West Wing. He should never be president of the United States. He has no experience. Zelensky was picked by an oligarch who controlled the media empire where this TV show, this, this, this series uh, was, was, was played. And that oligarch said, hey, the Ukrainian people are so fed up with the, the, the status quo in terms of the political corruption that maybe we can take this guy whom all the Ukrainian people see as a president and actually make him president. And they did. Zelensky won the election with 78 percent of the vote. Most many of those votes were from the pro-Russian, the Russian speaking population right. in Ukraine who viewed him as a peacemaker, as a guy who could make peace. But early on, it became clear that this comedian turned politician didn't have what it takes to overcome all of the obstacles. This is no no fault of his. Nobody could have succeeded. But, he, you know, for instance, when he said, I want to make peace with Russia, he he offered to, to have a ceasefire. And the Azov Battalion, those Nazis we're talking about, uh, were down fighting in the Donbass region. And they said, no, he went to visit them. There's a video, and it's humiliating to watch, where he confronts them and says, why aren't you disarming? And they said, haven't you heard? We're going to tell you what's really going on. He said, what's going on is I'm the president. And they went, we don't care. We don't care that you're president. We're going to do what we want to do because we're the Azov Battalion. Mm. Um, and ultimately, Zelensky... Uh, was was confronted that if he tried to make peace with Russia, one of the heads of the Azov Battalion said, if you do this, we will hang you by the neck on the main street in Kiev for all to see. He made a video saying this. It, it's not like he did it in secret, right out front. And nobody could do anything because these Nazis are throughout, are, are permeated throughout the entire Ukrainian structure. Zelensky went from 78% to 23%. Zelensky, in order to survive political, that's the approval rating. In order to survive, he had to arrest all of his political opposition, and he shut down all of the uh, opposition newspapers, uh, TV shows, radio. This is not the, the king of democracy here. This is a man who had turned into a dictator to survive. And because his popularity was so low, he had to get in bed with the Nazis, the people that were threatening to kill him. Zelensky had to bring them closer and, and, and promoted them to be, you know, in senior people in the military and the police and his government, etc. This is all that happened leading up to the war. So right before this war began, Zelensky was the furthest thing from the epitome of, um, you know, the brave Democratic leaders you could imagine. Mm. Now, the war happens and the media starts turning this guy into the modern day equivalent of you know, Winston Churchill, sort of a modern day uh, King Leonidas leading his 300 against uh, against the Russians. Uh, that transformation doesn't happen overnight. Zelensky is very much today the product of one of the one of the best propaganda um, exercises in modern history. And the Western media has fallen for it, helped sustain it and helped build him up. And I think you hit it right on the head. I think this guy is tragically doomed to fall because he's about to lose this war in a way that uh, most people I don't think recognize. They've fallen into this, the, the belief that somehow Ukraine is uh, defeating the Russians, pushing them back, etc. I think in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see ground truth, which is a strategic Russian military victory on the scale that we haven't witnessed since the end of the Second World War. And Zelensky is going to have to sue for peace. 
And at that point in time, the world's going to deal with the reality of, reality of what Zelensky is, which is a tragically failed and flawed politician put in one of the worst possible situations a human being could find him as, himself in. And he's going to be uh, reduced to a defeated leader of a defeated nation uh, that has suffered egregiously in a war that really didn't need to be fought. The real tragedy here is that Zelensky could have ended this war before it began simply by agreeing to Russia's conditions of not joining NATO. Mm. It is a, a tragedy on so many levels. In, in terms of the media's role here, I, I read a report last uh, yesterday, actually, that indicated that the media has been they've actually covered the major broadcast networks, ABC, CBS and NBC News have actually spent more time covering the war in Ukraine than they had covering the American invasion of Iraq uh, 20 years ago at this same point. Now, isn't that pretty alarming that the networks are spent more time covering Russia's invasion of a neighboring country than our own country's invasion of a, of a foreign country? No, I, I believe it is alarming. I, 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 I have uh, I, I've taken great umbrage at the, the way the mainstream media has approached this conflict um, and, and, and the bias that's that's built into their coverage. I, I have no problem with the news reporting things. And sometimes the news reports things that are controversial that that's difficult to you know get the totality of fact and so they you know they 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 might have to be incomplete in their story and such that's responsible journalism sure. but what we're seeing here is irresponsible journalism where they're running with um a story without checking all of their leads they're 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 leading off with um with suggestive uh uh, thinks, for instance, that Russia is evil, that Putin is evil, that Zelensky is great, that Ukraine is great. Um, I, I think that the, the 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 middle is composed of a, a whole bunch of gray. Not, it's not a black and white situation. It's very gray, very nebulous, very uh, mixed, very confused. And the the media should report it as such. But also the emphasis that's being placed on this conflict. Why? Why are we emphasizing this? Why are we heading in this direction? Especially when we failed to take a similar um, approach in terms of the intensity of coverage in, in a war that we ourselves waged uh, back in 2003. Um, you know, also, so, ask most Americans if they know what's going on in Yemen right now. They couldn't tell you. <laughs> Yemen, Syria, um, you know, any, anywhere else. And, and to be honest, I mean, I, I, I don't want to disparage, you know, the average American, but uh, they don't know what's going on in Ukraine either. Uh, they 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 compare it what they hear on TV, but what you're hearing and seeing on TV in the United States is so far removed from reality that you you know if all you do is watch TV and repeat what you hear on TV, um, I can honestly say that you know nothing about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, you, you're it's talking about these complex. sort of unconfirmed reports of Russians just butchering civilians and so forth. That well, I'll give you another example too. Yes, first of all, yes, I, I, the, the situation in Bucha is far more complicated than with the way it's been portrayed on TV. But also, let's the missile that hit the train station. Um, every day we're hearing, you know, the Russians launched a missile against a train station in this Ukrainian city and killing, you know, dozens of people. Uh, but what they're not saying is that missile, um, the Tochka U, uh, is not in the inventory of the Russian military. It is in the inventory of the Ukrainian military. Mm. Uh, the reverse azimuth leads to territory that was controlled 
by the Ukrainian military. It means it was launched from territory controlled by the military. And the serial number, and this is the kicker, the serial number proves that the missile was in the inventory of the Ukrainian army. So all of that suggests that this was a missile fired by the Ukrainian army that I don't believe deliberately hit the town, but only the Ukrainians can answer that, but, but struck and killed. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's the only direction the facts can take you. But because the Ukrainian government said that Russia did it, everybody's running with right. that story. Right. Um, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I'm going to let you go in a minute. I saw last week that you were thrown off Twitter. Then I saw yesterday Newsday or Newsweek, excuse me, Newsweek reported that you were reinstated to Twitter. But I tried to go on to your Twitter. And when I click on it, it still says this account has been suspended. Why did you get suspended from Twitter? Were you, in fact, reinstated? What do you think that this says about the role these big tech companies and social media is playing in terms of the free flow of information in terms of important issues like this? Well, I was banned from Twitter last week um, based on upon a tweet I put out that challenged the uh, the, 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 the current narrative that uh, Russia committed the crime in Bucha. I, I said the data leads me to believe that Ukraine committed the crime in Bucha and that if the president of the United States is seeking to transfer responsibility from Ukraine onto Russia uh, without any factual basis. And the thing that triggered me was when the president came out and publicly said that Russia was doing this and that Vladimir Putin was a criminal, um, which implies that he's received a briefing. He has some inside information. But then the Pentagon immediately came out and said, we got nothing. We don't have any additional information. We can't confirm what the Ukrainians are saying, which means the president is running with rumor put out by the Ukrainian government without any fact-based uh, speculation. That's in itself uh, you know, prima facie uh, war crime, seeking to uh, shift responsibility for a mass murder off of the guilty party onto another party. So I wrote a tweet critical of this. I was banned for this, accused of uh, of harassment uh, and, 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 and willing violence on people. I, I challenged it. Uh, the, tweet, the, the Twitter came back and said, we've read your, your, your appeal and we agree. No rules were violated. They reinstated me only to resuspend me for a similar tweet questioning oh, the narrative. Um, I've appealed that so far with no luck, but what, what, what's clear here is that by challenging the, the, um, the, the, the publicly accepted narrative of what's going on on the ground, uh, I apparently am in violation of, of, of Twitter rules. I'm not harassing anybody. I'm not threatening anybody. I'm just simply putting out an alternate set of facts. And here's the problem. Uh, in a nation where we embrace free speech, uh, and one of the reasons why we embrace it is, it, you know, we're, we're dealing with a nation uh, whose democracy is dependent upon uh, the, the fact-based debate, discussion, and dialogue on the part of its citizens to empower themselves with knowledge and information so that they can better hold those whom they elect to office accountable for what they do in their name. That is what democracy is all about, and that can only occur when there is the free exchange of of uh, information, uh, you know, an informed debate, as I said. Twitter is an ideal platform for this, where people can sure. put things out and, and they can interact. Um, and the decision by Twitter to limit this discussion by arbitrarily setting rules uh, the, to deny 
uh, one side of a of a very complex discussion a right to articulate its point of view is the antithesis of freedom of speech. Yeah. And while it may not be a direct violation of the Constitution, because the Constitution speaks only of a Congress's uh, ability to limit free speech, as an American, everybody should take umbrage at any corporate entity who has a monopoly on this kind of uh, interaction to impose rules that are restrictive of free speech. Now, however people feel about the Ukraine situation, I would hope uh, that they would agree with that. And it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful to work for a company like this one that really promotes and encourages free speech. Lastly, let me uh, ask uh, end by asking you about this. Uh, Yesterday I had on Pat Buchanan and he said some things about Ukraine and Russia and so forth, made, uh, I thought, some very interesting points. And then I was deluged with emails, text messages, Facebook messages of people uh, bringing up things that he wrote 30 years ago that have nothing to do with anything we spoke about. But they used this as an attempt to sort of diminish his credibility on everything we spoke about. The same thing when I spoke to Ralph Nader on this subject the other day. The same thing when I spoke to Max Blumenthal on this subject a week or two ago. I know uh, that there are going to be some folks uh, that ask me after after we end this discussion about your previous arrests and the fact that you've actually served prison time. Uh, Explain to folks preemptively why any issues you've had with the law should not uh, diminish your credibility on the issue of international affairs. Sure. I mean, first of all, I'll just say that, you know, my point of view is that I was wrongly prosecuted, wrongly convicted. I'm innocent. I'm continuing to fight the conviction. That's my issue. Um, and it's, 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 it's an issue which, frankly, most of the people out there aren't equipped to engage in a discussion with because they mm-hmm. don't know the details. The other point is, I don't care what they think about that. It doesn't matter. It has no relevance. Uh, I could have uh, played baseball for the New York Mets and gone to the World Series and been an MVP. And and that has no bearing on my background as a weapons inspector and an intelligence officer. You you can't mix apples and oranges. So if you want to focus on one aspect of my personal life, um, feel free. You can have whatever opinion you want, but it has no bearing on the facts I bring to the table about the issue of what's going on in Ukraine today. You can't uh, they, they, that's non-transferable data set. It's purely a deflection away from the fact that, let me say this, if people bring up my, you know, the, 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 the criminal case against me and use that as a means of attacking what I'm saying about Ukraine, it means that they have nothing to say mm. about Ukraine. Well, agreed. And I felt that way when they uh, critiqued all the other folks that I've had on on this issue and said similar things. Uh, Scott Ritter, I very much appreciate the time this morning. Hope we could to- talk again in the future. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Scott Ritter, uh, we'll continue in mere moments straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. I go out walking after midnight out in the morning. 
Speaking for a lot of us night owls, am I right? Uh, you know what I didn't mention yesterday? I didn't realize it yesterday, but uh, yesterday, actually technically Sunday, the 10th, was National Sibling Day. And so normally uh, my siblings or me will post a photo of us together. But I, I, I guess because it was Palm Sunday, it escaped my mind, or I didn't realize it until yesterday. So I did post on Instagram a photograph, uh, several photographs actually. Over the last, I don't know, 22 years of my siblings and me. So you could see a very young Frank Morano accompanied by his siblings, Nicholas, Alexander, and Claudia. And um, you, all you have to do is go to Instagram and uh, search Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. The other thing I've been wondering is uh, a friend of mine, my friend Nick came over the other day. Great guy, big listener to this show. And he had given me a Kindle a couple of years ago. And I am a book person. I like to hold the book. I like to fold through the book. He is trying so hard to win me over to a Kindle. Now, I gave the Kindle that he gave me to my wife because she was commuting at the time and she really liked it. I bought her some ebooks for the Kindle. He is working so hard on trying to get me, um, you know, uh, to can be converted to Kindle. And there are some features when he tells me about it, about the Kindle that I really like that you can get these samples of books, decide if you want to read it, the, the search function. So I don't, you know what it is? It's too trendy for me. I, I'm such an old fashioned guy. I, I kind of shun anything that's too modern, but I'm curious if anybody out there is like me, that they're like a, a regular paper book person and all of a sudden, they have now been won over to the cause of a Kindle. Call me, 800-848-9222, or you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Jim is in Manhattan. Hello, Jim. Hello. Yes, yes. Uh, I want to ask you, why do you always, regarding Ukraine, you always bring uh, so-called people who, who um, all them pro-Russian I mean, why don't you be able to have a little balance and get people from the other side? After all, the whole the entire world, all of Europe, they, 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 they all support Ukraine. And, and it seems you know better than anyone else, and you, you bring all these people, nobody, most nobody ever heard of them. And, uh, well, I don't think that's they, true. Yeah, they're, all, uh, they're all pro-Russian. Jim, uh, I, let me respond to you when we come back. Uh, because that's an important question that you ask. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, those of you that are holding, I will get to you. We've got a lot of other exciting things coming up. Uh, 800-848-9222. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. Um, you know, I, I'm so over discussing COVID, so I'm going to keep this update very brief. Um, COVID, at least the positive cases of COVID, are making a comeback all all over the country, quite frankly. Uh, co- the and you know, by the way, one thing uh, I want to come back to that in a second. But we are now seeing COVID cases up in many different parts of the country. Philadelphia is actually bringing back and restoring its indoor mask mandate as of yesterday. Philadelphia became the first major U.S. city to reinstate its mask mandate after reporting a sharp increase of coronavirus infections. Confirmed COVID cases have risen more than 50 percent in 10 days Uh, the threshold at which the city's guidelines call for people to wear masks indoors. Now, I was very unhappy with Mayor Eric Adams' decision to continue to have four-year-olds, three-year-olds, and and four-year-olds, three-year-olds, and five-year-olds still wear masks. I think, I, I mean, I'm over it. And I hope that New York does not go in this Philadelphia direction. Now, Adams was at that uh, White House Correspondence Dinner or the Gridiron Dinner. I think it was the White House Correspondence Dinner. Where, it might have been the Gridiron Dinner. Whatever. I, these all events of self-congratulating and backslapping, they all blend in in my brain. And apparently 10% of the attendees at that dinner, including Eric Adams, including Anderson Cooper, they got COVID. And they're all going to be just fine. Um, so Eric Adams so far, even though that he now has COVID – He hasn't given any indication that he's going to follow Philadelphia's lead. But don't be surprised if you start seeing more and more calls to bring back these COVID restrictions. I can't tell you what a mistake that it would be. New York, New Jersey, California. New study published by Steve Moore's group, the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. You could hear Steve Moore on Sunday. Uh, Saturday, excuse me, after my friend Larry Kudlow. And I realize Steve Moore has an ideological axe to grind, but I'll mention this anyway. New York, New Jersey, California failed in their handling of the COVID pandemic because of stringent lockdowns and policies, while Florida was among the best performing states in the country. So this study graded states by comparing COVID outcomes Based on the number of deaths, the economy, the impact on education. Overall, the bottom 10 on the study's report card were dominated by states that had the most severe pandemic lockdowns. Look, I think I agree with that. I think New York's approach to this was heavy handed and ineffective. And if you look at how Florida handled this, you didn't see even though they had a lot more freedom to actually live life, you didn't see deaths like you did in New York. And I realize there's more to it than that, and maybe that's an oversimplification on my part, but I just hope, especially now that most strains of this variant are not harmful to people, especially people that have gotten vaccinated, you're not seeing hospitalizations increase, you're not seeing deaths increase, 
I, I think there's a very good chance that, you know, this is becoming even milder than the flu. Speaking of the flu, one of the things that I'm so sick of people saying is what happened to the flu? Uh, all these coronavirus cases are being diagnosed. All these flu cases are being diagnosed as coronavirus. Well, it was an article over the weekend about an intriguing theory that may help explain why the flu and COVID never gripped the country simultaneously, the so-called twindemic that many public experts feared. The idea is that it wasn't just masks and social distancing and other restrictions, which people claimed, that caused the flu and other respiratory viruses to fade away. Rather, exposure to one respiratory virus may put the body's immune defenses on high alert, barring other intruders from gaining entry into the airways. The biological phenomenon called viral interference may cap the amount of respiratory virus circulating in a region at any given time. So I hope that more cities do not do, at least the city that I'm living in, what Philadelphia is doing and bring back these restrictions which tortured us for so long. I'm not trying to diminish the impact of the coronavirus. I know people that died of the coronavirus. I recognize that it can be a very serious thing. But at the end of the day, I think you have to make decisions about your own health. Um, when I talk to someone that says they don't want to go out because that's what's best for them, I don't shame them or anything like that. But don't tell me who's vaccinated and boosted that I need to wear a mask on an, on a bus or an airplane. Let me go about my business, especially now that this is a virus that doesn't appear to be seriously making anyone ill or killing anyone. And someone who said almost the same thing on Sunday on ABC's This Week with George. Uh, it's just ABC's This Week. It's not with George Stephanopoulos anymore. On ABC's This Week was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Listen to what he said here. There will be, and we've said this many times, even in our own discussions between you and I, that there will be a level of infection. This is not going to be eradicated and it's not going to be eliminated. Mm. And what's going to happen is that we're going to see that each individual is going to have to make their calculation of the amount of risk that they want to take in going to indoor dinners and going to functions, even within the realm of a green zone uh, map of the country where you see everything looks green, but it's starting to tick up. So you're going to make a question and an answer for yourself, for me as an individual, for you as an individual. What is my age? What is my status? Do I have people at home who are vulnerable that if I bring the virus home, there may be a problem. So we're at that point where, in many respects, she's correct, that we're going to have to live with some degree of virus in the community. This COVID is here to stay. But thankfully, it's here to stay as it is now. I think, I mean, I don't think it's going to come back to what it was when it was uh, causing all sorts of death and destruction. But Fauci's right there. I would have loved to have heard this from him a year ago that people have to make decisions about what's right for themselves. Let me take you back in time to a couple of years ago when Fauci was talking about the flu and they were talking about getting the flu shot. This is what Fauci said. 
Uh, but she's had the flu for 14 days. Should she get a flu shot? Well, no. If she got the flu for 14 days, she's as protected as anybody can be because the best vaccination is to get infected yourself. And so she should if not she get re- it? If she really has the flu, if she really has the flu, she definitely doesn't need a flu vaccine. Next, if she really has the flu. She right. should not get it again? No, she week. doesn't need it because the, it, it's, the be- it's the most potent vaccination is getting infected yourself. Now... Why is that tone so lacking when it came to natural immunity from COVID or acquired immunity from having the disease? I have said that uh, I think that in some respects, this Omicron variant, which it seemed like everybody got in December, was in some cases the best thing that could happen to us in that. Nobody got super sick for the most part. I don't want to say nobody, but most people did not get super sick. And instead, they were able to acquire immunity to protect them from more severe strains of this virus. That was my take. 800-848-WABC. If you want to comment, that's 1-800-848-9222. Jimmy is in Rockland County. Hello, Jimmy. Hey there, Frank. Uh, You're not alone in the book reading business. Uh, I prefer the paper for what reason we love it, but it just has to be that way. How come? How How come you're like me and prefer the paper? Why? I'm 55 years old, and I love old cars and everything old. I just don't like the new stuff. So it's just a, it's just that sort of um, vintage feel of nostalgia, right? I, I believe so. I'm also somewhat, what do they call that? Um, uh, when you have, like, uh, not neurotic, but um, compulsive, whatever they call that. And, I like, I like to look how many pages I'm going to have left in that chapter so I know how much I have to concentrate, how much effort I have to give to that chapter. And it's just the whole, you know, but I love the the paper books, and I've been given these tablets and Kindles and everything from every relative, my daughter. I'm like, no thanks. Well, I I hear you, Jimmy. Thank you. I think we're kindred spirits. 800-848-9222. Oh, let me respond to what the caller, uh, I I don't remember the caller's name, uh, Jimmy. I don't remember... The previous call's name, but I don't know. He was very respectful of asking why so many of the guests that we have on all uh, question the conventional media narrative. Couple of things here. One, we have had on um, th- during the war a couple of people that have differed from that, uh, but I'll admit that the overwhelming preponderance of guests that we've had on analyzing this Russia-Ukraine situation are people that are questioning what the mainstream media is saying. And the reason, uh, and we are going to do a debate, I think on Monday, uh, we're going to do a debate with people on both sides of this issue, so it's not just me presenting a one-sided perspective. But the reason that, um, you know, the reason that I have sought out these people, on the left, on the right, non-political, in the United States, in Russia, wherever, is because, you know, I I remember when they used to ask Rush Limbaugh, why do you never have any liberals on the show? Why don't you give them equal time? And what Rush said, and it was certainly true at the time that he first started his radio show, what Rush had said was that his show 
was equal time because, in his view, liberals dominated so much of the rest of the media that he needed his three hours, his little corner of the world to respond. That's sort of the way that I feel. The whole rest of the media have um, has a monopoly on the information on this situation. And with the exception of a few, I mean, the only really notable show that comes to mind on the cable news networks is Tucker Carlson. With the exception of a few shows, I'm it. I'm the only place that you're going to hear an alternative view. And whether it's wacko conspiracy theories or whether it's aliens or whether it's criminal justice system, whenever I hear anybody only putting out one message in the media and seeing Democrats and Republicans marching arm in arm saying how great Ukraine is, and, and I think Ukraine is great, but how great the Ukrainian side of this dispute is and how evil Vladimir Putin is, I feel obliged to find people who have an alternative view and to present it. And look, I try to ask them challenging questions. So uh, that's my best answer for you and an honest one. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Arthur is in Morristown. Hello, Arthur. All right. Sorry about that, Arthur. LQ is in the Bronx. Hello, LQ. Yes, uh, good morning and God bless. Um, your guest, uh, Scott Ritter, was excellent, and I like the point that you just ma- made uh, to get the other side. And all the person has to do is call in and say a uh, question. Whether you think you disagree with him, that's why you have your show. Right. And and again, I um, I don't know what questions I could be asking that I'm not. But um, look, I, I try to ask everybody tough questions, you know, no matter where they come from on the uh, on the political spectrum. But but thank you. I appreciate your I appreciate your comments and your feedback very much, LQ. Thank you. You're Eight, welcome. 800-848-WABC. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Hello, Frank. Frank, thank you for having these alternative guests on. Uh, you know, when you get your panel together, just a suggestion, maybe somebody from Vietnam Veterans Against the War. They, their perspective, I think, is very important and it's still pertinent today. But, uh, Frank, um, what the heck was I going to say to you? Oh, man. Um, oh, here's what it was. You know, when that first came out about the Russians killing these innocent civilians and throwing the, the tarpaulins over them. You know, there's so many dead bodies. There's, ten, there's thousands, 10,000 dead bodies. What's to take <clears throat> Ukrainian forces coming in, taking dead bodies, tie them up, pump a couple of AKs into them, and say these were done by the Russians? We have to see the videos of the Russians shooting them. I know we've heard transcripts over, over the radio that's saying Russian commanders kill civilians. But... <clears throat> This is like the My Lai Massacre. We we had pictures of the My Lai Massacre of the soldiers who did the massacre. So there was absolute proof that it was done by U.S. soldiers. You know, this is too big. Atomic The atomic bomb war that will end all wars is on, is on the line. And I'll tell you, the comedian, the, the comedian talk show host president, you know, he, he he's doing a great job putting down all the world and trying to drag us all into the Ukraine war. Thank you, Frank, for having this alternative view. 
you know, I don't hear it anywhere else. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Russ is in Rockaway. Hello, Russ. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I'm 65. I got the original COVID in uh, May of 2020. And I ended up running a fever for 20 days straight. Mm. And I'm not going to get a vaccine because an RNA vaccine that lasts six months is not like beating the virus, having an acquired immunity. You don't hear acquired immunity. Well, you don't hear yeah, I mean, I just, immunity. I just, I just made that that same point, Russ. Uh, uh, Russ, I'm losing. I'm losing you, Russ. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Lamar is in the Bronx. Hello, Lamar. Okay. Good morning, Professor Morano. You can hear me? I hear you. Go ahead, Lamar. Okay. All right. Professor, listen, I would just like to congratulate you on um, your panel of, like, you know, guests. All right? You know, your interviewees. Thank you. Okay, yes, yes, okay, and especially on Ukraine. I'll tell you what, like, okay, just the past two weeks alone, okay, two past guests that you've had on, they totally corroborate what Tex Bentley was telling us, okay, about a month ago. Well, I know a lot of them do. Look, I'm all for presenting uh, that perspective, but uh, I'm all for questioning every perspective. That's my view. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi, Frank. Yes, I want to second that emotion there. Uh, Scott Ritter is totally brilliant. And if only, if only the world had enough sense 20 years ago to listen to him instead of to Colin Powell. If Colin Powell had enough sense to listen to Scott Ritter, he wouldn't have embarrassed himself going up before the UN telling everybody that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction when he didn't have any. If you remember, now the gentleman called before said, nobody knows these people that you interview. Well, everybody knows Scott Ritter. Right. Um, until they took him off the air and everybody was afraid to put him on the air. He would tell anyone who would listen. He was the head, of the, the chief weapons inspector for the U.N. He had documentation of every single weapon that Saddam Hussein ever had, and he had document, documentation that 98% of them were destroyed, and the only 2% that were left were chemical weapons that had fizzled out a long time ago and were not even harmful. Now, think a million lives. The estimates go as high as a million Iraqis died in that war and how many hundreds of thousands of Americans got sick, got post-traumatic stress disorder, and we'll be paying for that for the rest of our lives and their lives. So, yeah, I mean, Scott Ritter knows what he's talking about when he talks about weapons. And you notice he's very careful. He tells you what he knows and what he doesn't know. And if he can say, well, the, the Ukrainians have that weapon in their arsenal and the Russians don't. So that seems to indicate that maybe the Ukrainians did it. Um, he gives you, you know, the evidence. And um, anyway, I just I just think it's great that you have him on. Thank you, Janet. I appreciate the feedback uh, very much. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-W-ABC. Phil is in Mendham. Hello. Phil. Uh, hi. Uh, I, I would say, contra Jim's point, that you, you have had speakers 
uh, guests rather that were um, kind of pro-Ukraine. I thought they were very good. Well, Although, let me let me just uh, uh, and I'm going to let you make your point uninterrupted. Sure I promise, Phil. But I just said I was just going to say before, and I and I got distracted by my own tangent that just because someone doesn't want to give military hardware and set up a new no-fly zone over Ukraine, that doesn't make them not pro-Ukraine. For a lot of us that want to see a negotiated diplomatic end to this conflict, we think that it actually saves a lot of Ukrainian lives. I, I would argue I'm far more pro-Ukrainian than, than, Lindsey Graham, than Lindsey Graham is, you know? Uh, I understand the theory, but I- I'm thinking that that it's a little bit like Chamber- uh, uh, Neville Chamberlain letting uh, Germany have Czechoslovakia in the interest of calming the situation down. Uh, and that kind of an appeasement really was just a recipe for a lot more war. But I, I wanted to uh, address Bucha because I'm surprised nobody has mentioned this about that. Uh, Bucha, the uh, Soviet, de- I mean the Russian denial was was debunked when they located satellite photographs that indicated that corpses that were laying there tied up had also had the satellite photograph it three weeks prior when the Russians occupied the city. So so that is why uh, it, it, they did do it, and that is why the enti- the giant consensus of all of the experts involved in that analysis is that the Russians did commit those atrocities. And your guest is the guy that said that because it's up in the air, which it's not, and Biden sort of supported that theory of the experts that Biden is a war criminal, and I don't believe he's called Putin a war criminal yet. So I'm a little bit shocked at all that. All right. Thank you, Phil. 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank, what's going on? You tell me, man. You tell me. Well, I'm going to tell you. Uh, I got a few observations here. So I want to make it a little bit light tonight. So, first of all, your girl Molly, I just spoke with her. I said, I don't understand. Every time I talk to you, you're very nice to me. And you had a problem a few weeks ago with somebody. She says, yeah, it happens from time to time. So I gave her a new AKA. It's, you remember, underdog with Miss Polly Purebred? Absolutely. This is Miss Molly Purebred now. <laughs> I think underdog had a thing for her anyway. Wait, you have a thing for her? No, no, no. no. I'm saying underdog had a thing for Miss Polly Purebred. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay. So now, you ever notice when you're in a certain location... Something clicks in your head. Like, I know when I'm in a certain location, I'll call the same person every time. It's just through association, I guess. So every time I pass South 6th Street, I think of Frank. I don't know why in Brooklyn. But then I look over. There's a place called Ping Pond. Ping Pod. P-I-N-G. Oh, yeah. I, that's, I, wa- I really want to try and try that place. As soon as my son starts sleeping through... The night consistently. I'm going to start going there every day after work to play. It sounds like a great place. Have you been there? Well, no, from the outside, I'm watching them play. They have, like, uh, TVs that you can watch them playing. They're on the other side of the building. It's a, it's a really, it looks like a nice place. Uh, no, it, lo- it, it does look cool. I, I'm looking forward to playing it. They have, you can not only play with other players, but they have these ping pong robots that you can play with as, uh, as well. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Igor's in Fairlawn. Hello, Igor. Yes, hi, Hawaii, Um The previously gentleman had his opinion about it and said that 
comedian president of Ukraine trying to drag United States to the conflict. And how about my opinion that United States of America drag Ukraine to the conflict? Is it true? It could be real. Do we know what the foreign minister of the Russia just said today? That they're not fighting with Ukraine, they're fighting this domination of their United States of America in the world. That's what he said. That's where we have a conflict between Russia and the United States of America. It is a real reason for the war. And this war could be avoided if United States behave a little bit different. The huge European country, the second maybe territory-wise, and maybe second the best army in Europe, ask them, please, we want to be free, we want to be a democratic country, everything what we want, please, we'd like to have our membership in European Union and the NATO. E- Igor, so just so, just for my own edification, where, where are you from originally? Yeah. I'm from Ukraine. Oh, you are from, from Ukraine. Ukraine. Which part yeah, of Ukraine? That's why it's very Odessa. Odessa. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's why it's very difficult and hard for me to listen uh, this kind of, you know, opinion. Everyone entitled for their own opinion and accept it hundred percent. And, and if you notice, Igor, the people that speak loudest, shouting their opinion, are the ones that seem to know the least. Exactly. So, uh, you know what? I am there. I am here, but I know everything, every single moment what's going there. Some people just don't have this information. And you know what? So they didn't receive any membership and they didn't receive the weapon. That's why they were so weak in and protected. Right. Well, and again, Igor, let me try and squeeze in at least one or two people here before we go to the mail. I don't think that excuses at all the um, I don't think that excuses at all Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. I, I think that was a violation of international law. I think it was unnecessary. I think it was irrational. And I think he should be held accountable for that. But the question is, some of the things that you're asking. Did the United States play a role in bringing this about? And, you know, would we have been better off with somebody who took an approach more like President Trump took to try and have better relationships with Russia? My view, my view is certainly yes. We're squeezing at least one call here. We're way late, but let me get to uh, Jennifer in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Frank. Um, it seems to me that Scott... Um I didn't ever hear him blame Vladimir Putin or the Russians. I really didn't. I heard him say something about they were acting in their own self-interest. Their own, um, that's what he said at one point. They, they feel that they're doing the right thing, acting in their own self-interest. Well, all well and good, but they did still invade a, a sovereign country, right. correct? Absolutely. And, and when I heard him say he felt that the Ukrainians, that the Russians weren't going to be responsible for Bucha, did I, did I mishear that? Uh, basically, I don't want to summarize what he said, but uh, people can go back and listen to the podcast, but some version of what you just said. Yes. Okay. So that all said, it seems like he is willing to believe something. He's telling us we can't really believe it. 
And the same thing with dismissal. He talked about at the train station, talking about the serial number. He didn't say where he got the information from. Maybe you know where he got it from. I don't. But he's, will- he's willing to believe that, too. And, yeah. you know, so I, I just find it interesting that, I, I don't know, I'm not there, but, I mean, he certainly seemed to have a very, very, he, it was very, very hands-off, and I'm playing to Vladimir Putin. Um, and he kind of was put, putting the hammer down on Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. Um, I, I just thought that it was, I don't know. Um, Pat Buchanan, by the way, is the best laugh ever. And, is, um, is what? I, would you, is what? Yeah, he has the best laugh ever. Oh, he does. I love it, too. I yeah. love it. Even at 84, I, I, 85, he still sounds good. Yeah. I appreciated you having him. I didn't get to hear the whole interview, unfortunately. But this man tonight, I, I just – and one last thing. He, he was kind of condescending toward the end when you brought up the thing about – uh, sort of like we don't know what we're, we don't know anything if we're going to be you know misled by something in his past. Well, if it related. Well, to you know, again, I, I don't. You know, I, I wish I had given him a heads up that I was going to ask him about that, and then I, I thought that uh, maybe it was a little unfair. But I knew everyone that disagreed with him was going to bring it up, so I figured why not let him? Why not let him address it? So. No, but what does it relate to? Does it relate to anything in his? No, no, no. It was uh, he was accused of uh, of trying to have sex with a minor. Okay, well, that's some, not good, obviously. Yeah, if it no was, doubt about it. Not, no not doubt about related it. to this. But it might also go to character on some level, if it was true. If it was, right. I'm not saying right. that. Right. So. Um, right, Jennifer, thanks thank for the call. Appreciate it. 800-848-WABC. We will go through your best and worst emails and conventional letters. Uh, oh, actually, wait a minute. What happened to that lady that was calling up saying that I was an anti-Semite? Molly, what, what happened to that lady? Did she hang up? She called back to tell me that the fact that you hadn't taken her call yet proved that you were an anti-Semite. Well, I mean, did she notice that um, there are a lot of other people trying to get through? Uh, She is not privy to that fact since she can't see the call screen, but she maybe should have noticed that since it took her multiple times to call back to tell me. That you were, in fact, proven to be an anti-Semite. You know, uh, whenever um, whenever people like to take a shot at me for having Pat Buchanan on or Ralph Nader on or whomever, uh, they love to throw out that label anti-Semite. So a few years ago, when a woman called into another radio program to say that I was a a Jew hater, uh, my friend, my best friend growing up from the time we were two years old, Still a very close friend to this day. Uh, My best friend, Brian Silverstein, put out the following statement. I've had the privilege of knowing Frank Morano for decades. As someone who has grown up with him and come to consider him one of my closest friends, I could tell you unequivocally that he is not an anti-Semite. We've discussed many issues over the years, including politics, international affairs, sports, our professional lives, and our families. Not once in our multitude of conversations did I think for one second that Frank had anything in his heart but love for the Jewish people. This fondness for Judaism and adherence to it was on full display when he attended my bar mitzvah, of which he received a candle. When he came to my home for a Passover Seder, and when he proudly wore a yarmulke in respect for Jewish traditions at several religious functions he attended, including my wedding. I remarked to Frank recently that he might be more Jewish than some actual Jews. 
Not only do I deeply regret that a fine man like Frank Morano, who has not only been a stalwart defender of the Jewish people, but a great spokesman and advocate for all things related to our community, has had to see his name dragged through the mud for no reason. But I deeply regret that this sort of name-calling and hate-mongering might have a chilling effect on allowing full discussions of what's happening in the Middle East in general and Israel specifically. No one should be hesitant of commenting or giving information about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for fear that they might be called an anti-Semite. I rarely like to make pronouncements about what's in someone else's heart or mind, but I can state without reservation that Frank Morano does not hate Jews or any religious or ethnic group. There you go. Certified non as a pro-Semite by Brian Silverstein. And, you know, my wife is considered Jewish. She's not a practicing Jew, but uh, my wife is considered Jewish. Her sister, my sister-in-law, who lived with me during the pandemic, is an Orthodox Jew. I was at my sister-in-law's Jewish wedding. And, um, you know, my son is considered Jewish by the folks that keep track of these things. So I think I rest my case. As on my in terms of my pro-Semitism. All right. Um, we're going to go through your best and worst letters in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C. The great Elvis Presley singing Hava Nagila. Before we get to your letters, let me squeeze in a couple of quick calls here. 800-848-WABC. Stewart is in Forest Hills. Hello, Stewart. Okay, Frank, I was forced to call you now. So, number one, I'm Jewish. My mother escaped the Holocaust from Poland in 1939. Next, when I went to Queens College, Frank, I was the president for a good number of semesters of the Queens College Jewish Defense League. I know what anti-Semitism is. I have relatives in Israel. I've been there. You are the extreme, extreme opposite of anything like that. For anyone to accuse you of that is literally cheapening the accusation for when it should be used. So, you know, I could repeat what I just said a million times in different ways, but I think I have my point across. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate that. Matt Blaze, are you Jewish? You are, right? You are. And you will confirm it's been at least weeks since I slashed your tires or painted any swastikas on your car or anything, right? That is correct. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. I've had to uh, wash anything off my car. Yeah. Yeah, good. Or heard you say anything behind my back. Right. One of my uh, textbook Jewish slurs which I throw around the uh, throw around the radio station like like crazy. Right. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello Neil. Hey Frank, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous the way people throw terms around that you're an anti-Semite. I, number one, I know you're not an anti-Semite. Uh you're good to me. I'm Jewish. We've been talking for over 10 years. I never heard you say anything. It's all bad part of my Jews. plan, Neil. All part of my plan. Yeah. They said the same thing about Donald Trump. Half his family, his daughter's <laughs> Jewish, grandkids are Jewish, the kids marry Jews, and they call him an anti-Semite. So it's just terms that people throw around. And when they throw these things around, it's been so prevalent and, and done so much 
that it's really meaningless anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, uh, Neil. And you know what? I, I, I think almost that people say that when they can't respond to the factual arguments that somebody makes, it's much easier to throw an ad hominem attack at somebody. Well, you know, Frank, I don't like Pat Buchanan, and I didn't listen to him. It's not because uh, half the stuff he says isn't true. He, he makes a lot of good points. I just choose not to listen to him. That's my right. Yeah, uh, right. Just like everybody else. More, you, more power to you. More power to you. To, I don't listen to Dr. Sky. It doesn't mean I don't like Dr. Sky. It just doesn't interest me. Yeah, fine, fine. Uh, uh, more power to you, Neil. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Carol's in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I heard um, Brian. Silverstein's um, speech, which basically it is, before, and I couldn't agree with him more. And first of all, he, he has an Irish first name. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Thank you. That's Th- right. uh, thank, um, thank you, Carol. All right. Without further ado, it is time for... begin with email. This is from Julia. Julia writes, Hi, Frank. Your interview with Scott Ritter was phenomenal. It was filled with clarity, facts backed by data, a thoroughly refreshing interview with no sense of angst. You may not feel this way about yourself. However, in my opinion, you are filled with statesmanlike qualities. Thanks so much for your contribution to society. Julia, isn't that nice? Well, Julia, you're welcome. You're welcome for my contribution to society. Uh, this is an SMS text message from Curtis Slewa. Unlike what he does to me, I will not make him wait on hold for three hours before letting his two cents be heard. He writes, now we can say we have had two registered sex offenders on the air, Wiener and Ritter. That's why you are the other side of midnight fair 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 point there curtis thank you all right this is uh, a piece of snail mail from e.m wolf dear frank morano well thanks a lot frank when you were reading letters the other night on your show oh by the way i never knew you were doing that and why wasn't i aware i attempt to stay awake for your show but then there are sometimes i fall asleep anyway my envelope you opened up and you stated this mailing is from mountainside new jersey So here I am so very excited you were about to read my mailing to you. Wow, but it's a card, actually an index card. But Frank, it's a form of communication. Well, Frank, you never read my response that I had written on the card, and that was it. And then you went on to another mailing. Thanks a lot, Frank Murano, M-U-R-A-N-O. Well, Frank Murano, I am a very conservative person, and I did not need to waste a large piece of paper. So I went with a small index card in order to convey my message to you. Okay? Question mark? Okay? Exclamation point. Right now, I don't remember the subject matter. Well, that makes two of us, E.M. Wolf. Well, anyway, Frank, when you see Mountainside, New Jersey, the next time, it is me and hoping that you will read it. Well, you take care. Till next time, a loyal Frank Murano fan. P.S. So sorry to hear of poor little Carmine and his crying. As a parent, a mother, I think he might be starving. 
Try adding some cereal, etc. This kid's 14.8 pounds. Trust me, he's not starving. If he keeps eating, then trust me, you're going to have to start taking steroids just to pick him up. Uh, all right. This is a, an email from Joe M. Uh, Joe M. writes, Frank is on the subject of the Buffalo boondoggle. Frank, if the billionaire owners don't get tax-funded stadiums, they will leave. We all know of teams that recently moved in all sports. Look at the NFL. The Rams moved from L.A. to St. Louis and back to L.A. The Raiders have moved several times. Oakland fans love the Raiders. Now the team's in Vegas. The benefit for the fans is the team. I know millions of taxpayers don't care, but millions do care and live and die with their teams. Imagine the trauma a diehard Raider fan felt when they left. If we go way back, don't you think the millions of Brooklyn Dodger and New York Giants fans would have loved to have their team stay in New York no matter what the cost? The Bills could easily and definitely leave New York. They probably would without a stadium. From what I hear, Buffalo is cold and depressing. Imagine how those people will feel when their beloved Bills leave. What would Bills Mafia do? Cities and states should pick their spots to battle these owners. If the Kansas City Chiefs said they were leaving, i give them a free stadium. But if the New York Yankees or Boston Red Sox said they were leaving, I'd call their bluff because those teams' identity is the city they play in. Good points all, Joe. Good points all. I will just say, I'm just questioning if this is the best investment of almost a billion dollars of taxpayer money, given what we're getting for this. Let's say you're right, Joe. Let's say it's so important to the morale of Western New York to keep the bills in New York State. Then how about we get a percentage of the money they're making from the stadium we're paying for? I I mean, I'm not against public investment. What I'm against is a public giveaway to billionaires. This is from Patricia in Ohio. Oh, this nice card here. Okay. Oh, boy. This is uh, lengthy. Frank, congratulations on being nominated award. I actually, I don't think I was nominated for a Marconi Award. If I was nominated for a Marconi Award, no one has told me. But thank you. If this is the first I'm hearing of it, Patricia, I'm honored to be nominated. That sounds like the really? kind of thing that Curtis makes up and just says. And hey, people not. don't question about it. Um, congratulations on being nominated for a Marconi Award. Well deserved. When you win, you truly have a gift over the weekend while grocery shopping overheard two people discussing your show. Although it was a train wreck, the Woman of the Year segment was some of the best radio I've heard in years. Classic, magical, hilarious. Your tribute to former co-worker George Weber was quite touching, quite kind. It's heartbreaking that many didn't want to honor or memorialize him after more details of his life came to light. What he did off the clock had zero bearing on his work life. How unfortunate it is that it is easy, that it is easy to identify others' perceived sins while uh, insulting our own. Several years ago, I came across the following quote on judgment in general. Judge tenderly if you must. There is, a, there is usually a side you've not heard a story you know nothing about, a battle waves that you're not having to fight. Uh, Tracy Leah LaRussa. Also, that which doesn't concern others doesn't. My best to you, Rachel Baby Carmine, Patricia. And then uh, she includes an insert into this card here. Uh, you mentioned that your recent threat discomfort throat discomfort is attributed to acid reflux. I had a good remedy for regular sore throat pain. Sleep, steep one teaspoon of dried thyme or sage in half a cup of water for five minutes. Strain, 
cool gargle. This can also be sipped as tea. Just use one cup of water. Thyme and sage are natural antiseptics. Well, that's awfully nice. Thank you, Patricia. I'm going to have my assistants, my many, my team of assistants, work on going uh, and getting some time. Uh, this is an uh, email from Christine. Hi, Frank. Is it a bore to hear this again and again? Your show is the best. Let me state clearly, no, it's not a bore. And because I love radio so much, I'm so grateful to have found you some months ago. I appreciate you're trying to make sense of the Ukraine situation. So are we. So I loved your interview last night with Max Blumenthal, which I played for my husband tonight at dinner. He found an interesting article uh, about this written seven years ago, uh, but relevant in The Guardian. And then it has to do with the neo-Nazis that are fighting in Ukraine. He also said that apparently there are several large streets in Ukraine named for famous Azovs relatively relatively recently. What? The whole thing makes you aware of how complex the situation is and how the media is painting things in a simplified, sometimes inaccurate way. We listeners love when you talk about your personal life, so keep sharing with us. And because we care about you, we're glad your throat feels better. I hope it gets better and better. Awfully nice, Christine. Thank you. This is uh, an envelope addressed to Frank Marano, M-A-R-A-N-O. So, so far we have three spellings of Frank Marano for the day, M-O-R-A-N-O, M-U-R-A-N-O, and now this is the M-A-R-A-N-O. Dear Frank, I am a 90-year-old person in possession of an old LP album inherited by my mother-in-law from her shore house in Forked River, New Jersey. Here's some info. Phil Spector's 20 hits, over, turning the index card over. In Good Shape album, published 1976, printed, made in England. The Ronettes, uh, Tina Turner, Righteous Brothers, um, Darlene Love, Crystals, and more. Do I have trash or treasure? So I, I guess if Glory is asking is if they're valuable or not. And truth is, I have no idea. If um, Molly, you want to add something to this? You know oh, about no, things. I just I don't know anything about anything. Um, I do know that there are people. So I had said to you uh, about the appraiser. It would I think it'd be cool if we had an appraiser. Yeah, and we do had like, like our a, version of Antiques Roadshow. Yeah. Okay. In the middle like of that. the night. Um, uh, that's not bad. The, yeah. the, we should do that, actually. Well, let's put that on the calendar for next week. I'll let's add that do that. to the list. Yeah. So see if we can get an appraiser to come in studio. We'll, we'll have people bring in stuff. That'll be fun. Uh, all right. This is Claire. Hi, Frank. There's an email. I enjoyed your show this morning until... Exclamation. I mean, uh, capital letters. I know when they start capitalizing mid-sentence that I'm in trouble. I enjoyed your show this morning until you mentioned that you were invited to a communion party with the theme, a mermaid's tea party. I think in a response, you should explain that it seems they have completely lost the meaning of first communion. This is a special celebration of a very religious event, not a costume party. It is time to get together to congratulate the communicant as they grow in the Catholic church. I was so upset exclamation point. Well, Claire, I get that you were upset And I'm sorry, um, this is a cousin's communion that I was invited to. You know, I I mean, she's a little girl, and she probably just likes mermaids, and they were trying to do something fun for her. I don't think there's anything wrong with furthering your sacraments and at the same time letting a little girl have some fun with with mermaids. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All right, here is uh, an envelope from Henry. Uh, Before you open this envelope, it's actually written on the back of the envelope, Before you open this envelope, you might find out if any at WABC who learned any Latin, even if only church Latin, can translate 
underst- slash understand the following. Enescius mi fili quintia prudentia mundus regater. And uh, Molly was kind enough to translate this from us. She is a minor in Latin. Don't you know how little prudence rules the world? I will open this letter, which is always a tricky proposition with Henry. Um, And then it is a definition of wisdom on one side. Frank, this is from a book, book published in 1896, which I discovered in the reference section of the university I went to, University of Pennsylvania, a handy book of literature, Curiosities by Walsh. Uh, It posits the idea that people aren't really that smart about things, especially leaders and rulers, and never have been and likely never will be. I find comfort in this understanding. Henry, P.S. Statements like the Latin here need to be hanging on the wall in many more major government offices. Don't you think, Henry? Henry, Uh, maybe, maybe that's fair. And um, one one more here I'm going to read via email, uh, and then we have one more snail mail. Um, Let me – okay, Uh, this is a little lengthy, but I'll I'll work my way through this. Uh, Mr. Morano, by way of background, I'm a retired FBI SSA NYFO. I have devoted most of my adult years to public service. There are still many of us who believe in duty, honor, country, faith, integrity, and courage. Early this morning, I was listening to your radio show, The Other Side of Midnight, and heard your dilemma about your son's christening at Trinity Church. I'm a member of a small community-oriented Catholic church in Leonia, New Jersey, which is approximately one mile from the George Washington Bridge. The venue is neither St. Patrick's nor Trinity in Lower Manhattan, but it's a quaint Catholic parish in as much as you asked for suggestions I thought I would pass the information on, and then uh, they include a link. I have three stepsons, all law enforcement officers. My husband is a retired captain of police, and my son uh, in his first year of college. I like to compare our family to the show Blue Bloods. All the best with your new son as a mom, wife, and female, who also had an exceptional career at the FBI and spent many on FBI New York's elite Joint Terrorist Task Force, I always strive to maintain a balance in my personal life. My career played a significant role in my life, but my family always came first. On a different note, I like Curtis's show, too. Well, there's no accounting for taste. And uh, let me read this. This is snail mail from Roger in Massachusetts. Mr. Moreno, as you may as you may ascertain, I am not an advertising executive. I'm merely a high school educated truck driver who has the luxury of being able to do a lot of thinking. I'm pretty sure that's why we were given a brain, but I digress. I have felt compelled in recent months to compose the following commercial script for the product of one of your sponsors that you yourself use and enthusiastically advertise on the other side of midnight. The only disclaimer would be that it be reserved for nights that Molly is in studio because she is to be the nurse while you are to be Mr. Patient, unless, of course, you'd rather be uh, Mr. Morano. You're welcome, Roger B. P.S. Don't feel obligated to read this on Tuesday morning letters segment. Enjoy. Do not read it. Because we're going to perform it. Oh, we're going to perform it? And we are going to be the first radio show to get a Tony. Uh, All right. Well, so we'll we'll perform this. Yeah. Okay, but not right now. uh, You want to do it now? uh, We're ready. We have... have... All right. Let me take a quick break, and we'll perform (laughs) this when we come back. Uh, Hear the exciting conclusion. Until then, though, this concludes this edition of... Radio 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. 
been watching you a la 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 long a la 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 long long li long 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 come on a la 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 long a la 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 long long li long 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 hey. standing across the room i saw This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you ever want to be uh, heard via email, you can also email me, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. And uh, I am on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash m-o-r-a-n-o fan. Uh, Just in response to that nice person that suggested that church in Leonia. You know, my wife, uh, she really doesn't want to have him baptized Catholic. So we figured Episcopal or uh, now even Methodist was a good, uh, it was a good middle ground between, you know, for the two of us. She comes from the evangelical tradition. I come from more of a a Catholic tradition. All right. Uh, Without further ado, here is the commercial. We're doing this live. First time, first time, uh, written by... Roger in Massachusetts. So, so here we are concluding a routine checkup at the doctor's office. Now, Mr. Patient, are you uh, regular? Well, the ladies consider me to be a regular guy, so I guess so. Uh, Mr. Patient, do you uh, move your bowels very often now he's given us two options for this i'm going to go with option one no i haven't touched them they should be right where they were the last time i was here didn't you see them on the x-ray mr patient have you evacuated your bowels recently no of course not do i smell i know better than to climb up inside there it stinks in there it stinks in there okay here take this you may go now all right. That's it. Well, if uh, that sounds good to you, you can go to getthetea.com and uh, order using the promo code FRANK. And um, there you go. There you go. Uh, all right. Without further ado, hey, next hour, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we are going to talk oil prices. And uh, if you're interested in hearing about oil and gas prices, you're going to want to listen to my conversation with Dr. Ellen Wald. Uh, she's very worldly. And she knows a thing or two all about oil prices and the oil economy. We'll get into it in a big way coming up uh, next hour. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, uh, I know ne- you know I was named for my grandfather, and uh, I never met him. He died before I was born, and um, I my maternal grandmother died when I was very young. I have no memory of her. My other two grandparents, 
I was very close with my maternal grandfather and my uh, paternal grandmother. And um, my grandfather died when I was a teenager. I think I was 14 or 15. My grandmother passed away just a few years ago at uh, the age of 95 and uh, was blessed to know both of them very well. But was always very interested in learning about all four of my grandparents. And I was very um, fascinated. I don't want to say I was surprised, but I was interested in this article that indicates that more than half of Americans don't know the names of all four of their grandparents. I have to be honest. I am surprised that it's so many. I could see it being 20%, 30%, but more than half. A recent study study of 2,113 U.S. adults, including 1,911 from the top 10 Nielsen markets, Nielsen market areas, and 202 from Salt Lake City found that there is a massive knowledge gap when it comes to recent family history. I can understand not knowing all your great-grandparents. I can understand not knowing your great-great-grandparents. I don't even think I know all of my great-great-grandparents. But um, what this survey found is that knowledge of past generations varied by city, as 66% of Boston residents could name all their grandparents. I should have asked Jennifer from Boston when she was calling in. Compared to only 26% in Philadelphia. Isn't that interesting? 66% of Boston residents could name all their grandparents, but only 26% of Philadelphia residents? Why do you think that is? Uh, 800-848-9222. San Francisco residents were not much better at 34% while people in Chicago and Dallas were only slightly better at 36%. So as a whole, just 47% of respondents could correctly name all four grandparents. Uh, This was a poll conducted by one poll on behalf of Ancestry. So um, keep, keep, I guess, you know, keep in mind the source. Maybe Ancestry is going to use this as a bid to sell more memberships to Ancestry.com or something. I don't know. But let's say it is true. This, First of all, do you believe it's true? Let me ask you that. 800-848-9222. This survey also reveals that only 4% could name all eight of their great-grandparents. I don't think I can. I'll try and do that in a second. When it comes to knowing the most about their family history, three in four people in Salt Lake City say they feel knowledgeable compared to 46% of those in Philadelphia. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Despite the knowledge gap, most respondents expressed interest in learning more about their family history. In particular, over half want to know stories about their ancestors when their ancestors were young and uh, what they were like at the time. So I'd be curious. One, can you name all four of your grandparents? 800-848-9222. Two, are you surprised by this result that less than half of Americans can name all of their great-grandparents, all their grandparents? Three, why do you think there's such a disparity from city to city? Why do people in Boston know about their family history, their recent family history, so much better than the folks in Philadelphia. 
848-WABC. Tell me what you think. Uh, so I know all four of my grandparents. Do I know all eight of my great-grandparents? So my father uh, – on my father's side, so his grandparents on his father's side were Carmine Moreno and Madeline Moreno. So I, though that's two. On his mother's side, his mother was his, – his grandmother was Katie, who I knew, uh, and his grandfather was Frank who I did not know. Uh, on my mother's side, that's a little trickier. I know her grandmother was Lucy. I don't know who Lucy's husband was. Got to ask my mom about that. Mom, if you're texting, if you're listening, text me that. And then um, on, I know her paternal grandfather, he, he never came to Italy. Excuse me, he never came to the United States. They stayed in Italy. Her paternal grandfather was named Pasquale, and I believe her paternal grandmother was named Palma. So I can name seven out of eight grand- great-grandparents. That's not bad. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Matt, can you name all four of your grandparents? My grandparents, absolutely. All four? All four. I had both my grandfathers, my mother's father and my father's father, were both named Jack. Oh, that's easy. So I had a pair, I had a pair of Jacks. Then my, mother, uh, my father's mother was Sylvia, and my mother's mother was Mildred, and she died before I was even born, so I am named after her. You're named after Mildred? Yes. So your real name is Mildred? No. Ah. The M. You know the, you know how the Jews name after dead I people? See. I so see. So the M had to be an M name. I see. Gotcha. And then my grandfather did get remarried before I was born, so I did have another grandmother. Oh, well, that's nice. Like my mother's stepmother was Yetta. So I, I know. But my great-grandparents, I, I couldn't even name one. You can't name one great grandfather. I think my great grandfather might have been Isaiah. Really? Maybe. Interesting. That's, so that's, so that's you didn't it. know any of your great grandparents? Oh, as a matter of fact, no, I, I do. I can name another one. Um, your story's falling apart like crazy. Anna, She's Anna. falling apart quicker than oh, Zelensky's story. I just story. remembered my great grandmother was alive until I was about 12. Oh, well, then you have no excuse not to. And her name was Anna. So all right. I, I okay. All right. Uh, Molly, what's your story? Now, I know you only knew three until we happened to feature as a guest your grandfather on the show, and you got to know him a little bit after that, which I'm glad that we could facilitate. But uh, w- do you know all four of your great grandparents? Uh, yeah. Tom, Sheila, uh, Margaret, and William. And what about how, what, how many of your eight great-grandparents can you name? The one I'm named for, and that is no it. Good. And I really, really hope that my family isn't listening. Cause Why? They won't like that. They won't like that. Oh, that. I can't name. Well, I don't like it either. Yeah. No, I, I don't like it either. And I'm now I'm uncomfortable, Frank. Why right. did you do that to me? Well, so had I known, instead of getting you a cake for your birthday, we would have gotten you a, a membership to, to yeah, a gene, genealogy site or something. Eight hundred. If any genealogy sites are listening and want to sponsor us, we'll do Molly's, you know, we'll do all our family histories on the radio. And uh, you could tell us what you find. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi. Good morning. Morning. Um, two Two things, if you don't mind, Frank. First, regarding the Trinity Church and um, the possible christening of your beautiful baby boy. Yes. Um, They had to have known that the date that you chose, I mean, they have to have known that that Mike Grace was going on that day. They should not have booked you. I mean, seriously. Well, so in in the Episcopal Church, apparently they only baptized children on certain days. And so I wrote to I wrote to them and they wrote back to me 
after the show yesterday, and she said, we often have to contend with the New York City Marathon with our November baptisms on All Saints. We usually tell people to plan on arriving early and allowing yourselves extra travel time to accommodate road closures. If public transportation is an option, that can be a viable alternative. I see. I think that's going to be very difficult, especially for my in-laws coming in from Long Island. So I think we're just going to have to uh, move it to another venue. Well, I'm sorry, because that is a beautiful church, but I'm sure wherever you have it will be beautiful. Thank and you a special very much. Day. Thanks, Mary. You're welcome. Um, regarding so many people not knowing all, you know, their grandparents' names, I think that's a reflection on where we stand as a country. I think so many children are born out of wedlock or men, you know, may desert the family and that's sad. We should know who we're from, not just our parents. I, I agree with you, Mary Beth. Abs- I, I couldn't. I, I'm agreeing with you on the the latter point. I, I have no idea what the reason for this is, but that's as good as a hypothesis as I've heard from anybody else. Mary Beth, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two. If you want to comment, why do you think so many people don't know their grandparents? Two, do you actually believe this survey is accurate? I tend to think it might be. Three, why such a difference between people in Philly versus people in Boston? And four, can you name all four of your grandparents? 800-848-WABC. Wayne is in Hempstead. Hello, Wayne. Uh, hi. Hi. You know, hi. Hi. It's a great hi. show, Frank. I just Thank you. Good. And, and you, know what, you know, I was actually I was on hold for this thing about Ukraine and Russia. And I could get to it, you know, but I just wanted to mention the fact what's nice about the way you do the show is it's kind of like we could, it's almost like having a nice conversation across, you know, some nice coffee and cake in anybody's house. You know what I mean? Well, thank you. That's what we try and do on this show. We're your radio coffee clutch. I have a tiny bone to pick with you before I get into anything. Bring it on. Bring it on. I'm ready. Theme song, okay? And I don't know the history of why you selected that song. Wait, uh, when you say the theme song, are you talking about the one that we play at the top of the hour at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and 3 a.m.? Or are you talking about the one that we play at the top of the hour at 4 a.m.? Oh, gee, I don't know. Sandman is all I know. Okay, yes, that's the top of the hour theme for the fir- for the first, uh, second, and third hour. Yes, go ahead. Oh, okay. The only thing is, look, I don't know. How, I don't know your history on it. So, you know, I'm not going to say gee, but you know, truthfully, it's you know that song belongs to number forty two. Period. That's it. You know, <laughs> uh, Mariano Rivera. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, the only thing I see when I, when I first of all, it's a great song. Period on its own, but. But there's nothing more like the, the visual of, of Mariano trotting in to that song. It's just so absolutely, it's like, it, it's like, you know, burned into my consciousness. And I love it because I love, you know, when he came in and to hear the song, it's like, here we go. You know, this is it. We're going to win this game. You know. <laughs> well, I hear you, John. But don't forget, I, I, I guess you're a Yankee fan, not a Met fan, right? Okay. I, just, is that you know, true? I, I'm asking, are you a Yankee fan? I grew up really mostly in Queens, and I, I like the fact that the Mets arrived. But I'm sorry, you know. Okay, that's fine. Hey, I, the people are what they are. My my dad anyway, is. A I'm, not a, I'm not a Met hater. Like okay, the it's it's fine. Yankees aided by the Mets. That's ridiculous. But um, w- Billy Wagner, who was the closer for the Mets at the same at you know around the same time as Mariano, he okay. also used that as his theme. Really, I never heard of that. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. And uh, I actually the the only history is I used to listen. 
um, very religiously to Tom Likas on the radio. And that was his theme. And just to me, it just became so synonymous with a radio show beginning. So I kind of stole it from Tom Likas. I'll tell you what, I'm glad I asked, and, and now I feel completely comfortable with you playing the song. So Thank you. Continue, and it's beautiful. But <laughs> Matt, Matt, you got the approval from Wayne. You can continue. Okay, go it's ahead. It's always good to hear the song, no matter what. Thank but, you. But now, if I could go back to my original thing and maybe come up to the – I'll answer the grandparent thing. You know, I know my – actually, you know, my grandmother on my mother's side, she passed away before way before I was born, so – and, you know, she, there wasn't really a lot of discussion with her. So, you know, I, I don't really, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's Francis. You know what I'm more interested in is their lives, you know. Sure. Like, that is more fascinating. And, you know, my family doesn't even discuss it, so what can I tell you? But <laughs> people are like that. You know, as far as Boston and Philly, I know both cities. My only feeling is, like, Boston's kind of smaller. It's kind of like a home mm. hometown kind of a feeling. You know, like the North End, of course, is, you know, like originally you had a lot of Italians in the North End. It just seems like everybody knows everything. It's like, you know, it's a more familiar type of thing. Philly is sort of broadcast. It's it's, it's really spread out. So maybe that's why. Who Interesting. Knows? All right. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Wayne. I appreciate the call and your nice compliments. 800-848-9222. I want to squeeze in a couple of quick calls here before we get to Ellen Wald to talk energy prices. Sonny is in East Range. Hello, Sonny. Yeah, how are you doing, Swap? Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, my mom is Mary Virginia, and my daddy is um, um, Joseph Norman, right? So, yeah, Mary and Joseph. But my, my mom's mother's name is Carmen. I'm a, I, I didn't meet her husband. He died before I was born. Wait. Uh, my, right. So, Sonny, you can name all four of your grandparents, or you can't? I can't. You can't. I'm good. My mom, mom is Carmen, uh-huh. right? And and um, her, her uh, my mom, father is um, Charles Jones. Gotcha. And and, and, you, and you can name. I'm not going to ask you to name them, but you can name your father's my, parents my too. Grandmother, my great grandmother, she died hundred seven in my arm. Um, I was twenty six, and um, all right, all right. Um, I just had my age to her. I, I, I got a good number. Ben, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> thank you, Sonny. Uh, JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hi, good morning. How's everybody doing? Listen, I have a take that I believe uh, throughout the last generation, there's not too much oral tradition at the table anymore. You don't tell stories as much of your growing up and your parents' reaction to now your child is young, but my children are fairly you know, they're older, and you're not really telling them the stories of your childhood or telling them the stories of your siblings' childhood, which would lead to your parents' reaction and their needs. And I don't think family stories are being traded as much anymore. You know, I think that's a good point. And uh, that is sort of the direction that I was leaning in when I first saw this story. And that was one of my hypotheses that maybe. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Moving forward, I think you may see a little bit of an uptick in children, say, like 10 years or so, who lost a grandparent in the pandemic, mainly because there's more of a story behind it. Hmm. 
Well, you might be right about that, uh, JR. It's as good a theory as anything else I've heard. We'll do one more here before we get to um, Ellen Wald. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? So I was going to say I can name, um, you know, my four grandparents, but my whole family died out in the Holocaust. Oh, boy. So oh, I'm sorry to hear the that. Records, all the records, everything were destroyed. And the only survivors were my grandfather and his sister. And his sister disappeared. And my grandfather had never really talked about, you know, pre-war life. And then I was going to say the, as far as why Philadelphia doesn't know as much as like people in Boston, I think uh, I hate to say it, but I think it's the demographics of the people there where it, like Philadelphia is more of like a, like a better area, like a hood. Um, you know, there's not as much family there as like better place like Boston. All right. Well, I, hey, uh, look, we don't know the the reason, John. I'm sorry about your own family history. That had to be really tough. I appreciate you sharing that. Oliver on Staten Island. Hello, Oliver. Holy cow. Great to be with you, Frank. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but I want to go. Begin right at the beginning. Let's start from the very beginning. You know, I always sing with you. <clears throat> I sing with you. Zing with the strings of my heart. I told you about Scrabble and how I won the 56th word with Zingy, uh, I had to tell you that I topped myself, and I played another word for 60, a whopping 66 points on Scrabble Go. Never give up, people. Wow. That, I mean, that is that is something, Oliver. Well well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Now, here's, here's a really uh, – I just had to throw this in a little – throw my hat in here. I, uh, my father told me once, before he passed away, some few years ago, he said, anybody with the last name Terry is your relative. Now, I have been an aspiring singer for years and years and years. Uh, rave reviews. People love the way I sing. But I just couldn't break through. Now, how about this? What happened is that I heard a wonderful singer. I mean, I've got to go right to it. Diane Reeves. And here's the connection between my grandmother, Wilhelmina Terry, and Diane Reeves. Who, who gave Diane Reeves her first start in the music business? I, I don't know. Uh, your grandparent? I'll tell, I'll tell you. His name was Clark Terry, the and, great Flugel Hornet. Uh, and that was your grandparent? My Wilhelmina Terry was my my. Great, my grandmother on my father's side. Yeah. All right, uh, Oliver. I'm sorry. The music is playing. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, Ellen Wall joins me next to discuss oil prices. Straight ahead. WABC Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, whether you talk about politics these days, whether you're talking about the geopolitical situation with Russia, whether you talk about affairs in the Middle East, whether you talk about the economy, it, whether you talk about the future of the environment, it seems like everything 
comes down to a discussion about energy, energy prices, the future of energy, how all the other factors that I'm that I just mentioned are affecting energy prices and how energy prices are affecting everything else. Some numbers came out yesterday that show inflation might be the highest it's been since August of 1982. And believe it or not, those are numbers that may not even include the energy costs. Well, an article after article and analysis after analysis when asked to explain why inflation is so out of control, why it might be up 6.6%, expert after expert all says the same thing. It's due to oil prices. It's due to gas prices. Now, if gas prices aren't included in the CPR, how is it that uh, gas prices are driving inflation? Those are a few of the questions we have for Dr. Ellen Wald, she is a historian and a scholar of the energy industry and Western involvement in the Middle East. She's also the author of a terrific book called Saudi Inc., The Arabian Pursuit of Profit and Power. Kind enough to join me this morning. Ellen, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me. So I know oil prices have dipped a little bit, and I want to ask you about that, but what has been driving the recent uptick in gas prices? Uh, I know the conventional wisdom has that it's uh, the supply chain issues, that it's an increase in demand, and that it's the uh, tensions with Russia. Do you deviate at all from that conventional wisdom? Well, I think it's important to understand that when you are looking at gasoline prices, the vast majority of gasoline prices is the price of oil. So when the price of oil goes up, gasoline prices are going to go up as well. Uh, there are other components. So, for example, um, all of the gasoline in the United States contains some amount of ethanol, which is uh, in the United States made largely from corn. So if corn prices go up, then the price of ethanol can go up, and that can also cause gasoline prices to rise. However, really the bulk of it is the price of crude oil, and we have seen a fairly precipitous rise in the price of crude oil recently, mostly owing to the tensions and the, the violence in the military uh, um, going on between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, now, we were seeing oil prices rising before that due to some of the factors that you mentioned, supply chain issues, inflation, demand was growing, but supply wasn't really growing to meet that demand. Although the truth is that we do have enough oil in the world today. We're not concerned about shortages of oil. Uh, we don't have to worry about gasoline rationing or gasoline lines. We're really just talking mostly about rising demand, uh, which is which was met by supply, but largely these price increases are due to speculation about what's going to happen with Russia and Ukraine, because Russia is one of the world's largest oil producers. And so when there is any kind of military engagement with a big oil producer, the price of oil will be affected because people looking at the market start to get worried that they might not be able to export as much oil, for example. And so a lot of this rise is due to geopolitical tensions. And that's another reason why we're seeing such fluctuations. Oil was up well over $100 a barrel. Oh, now it's down under $100 a barrel. And then two days later, it's up again. And a lot of that has to do with uncertainty over whether 
the EU is going to implement sanctions against Russia? Uh, are they going to sanction Russian oil? Are they not going to sanction Russian oil? What's going on in the conflict? Do we think it might be resolved? Um, is there a potential for other oil producers to produce more? All of these are really affecting the price of oil in a much more significant way, and that's why we're feeling it at the pump as it happens. And one of the moves that the Biden administration has made to give consumers and motorists a little bit of a break is to release some of the oil from the strategic petroleum reserve. Now, whenever any president does this, this always seems or talks about doing it. This seems like a controversial move. Uh, some people were saying that it wouldn't have much of an impact on prices. Other people were saying this is not the right time to do this. What was your take uh, in terms of the the impact on consumers and the broader decision to tap into the strategic petroleum reserve. Was this the right move? Was this the wrong move? What do you think? Well, I think it's a very controversial move because the the SPR, the strategic petroleum reserve, was created as a, a way to alleviate shortages uh, of oil, particularly uh, in the event that the United States was not able to import oil. It was actually created at the time when the U.S. was a major, major oil importer. We're still an important oil importer, but our domestic uh, industry has really taken off uh, in, in recent years, and so uh, we're, not, we're not importing quite as much as we used to. But the idea was if, say, uh, some nation was forced to stop exporting oil or um, decided they didn't want to sell to the U.S. anymore, that we would be able to uh, cover that shortage with oil in our strategic petroleum reserve. What we're looking at now is a very different situation because there is no shortage of oil, particularly for for those uh, consumers in the U.S. It's just that the prices are higher than consumers would like to pay, and they're higher than the Biden administration mm. wants because it, it reflects very badly on the administration. For some reason, no matter what uh, the actual reason for high gas prices are, Americans always blame the president and the administration in the White House for high gas prices, even if it's not their fault. So the Biden administration is trying to use the SPR to push prices down. And that was never the purpose of the SPR. And it's not really guaranteed that this move will actually work to bring down prices because we're not in an era of, of a supply shortage. So they want to release basically 180 million barrels of crude oil over the next six months. That amount is completely unprecedented mm. in the history of our SPR. And uh, there's really no way to know how oil prices will be uh, affected because they're not just releasing oil. They're selling the oil to refiners, and the refiners have to buy that oil. Refiners may not want to buy all that oil, or they may think that the, the prices the government's offering aren't good enough for them. Mm. Uh, and so it's entirely possible that this move is not really going to affect oil prices to the extent that the administration is hoping for. Has it had, because you indicated that some of the price is due to speculators, has the decision to tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve had any downward effect on prices already among speculators? Has, that, has it driven the oil price down? I saw yesterday that oil, uh, the barrel of oil uh, dipped below $100 a barrel for the first time in a while. Is that a good sign for consumers anyway? Yeah, it 
exactly. That's a really great question because that seems to be exactly the extent of the move. So back in um, in November and December, the Biden administration was also concerned about rising prices and did um, release oil from the SPR. And that's exactly what happened. We saw a dip in oil prices at the time of the announcement Mm. of the release. And that lasted a little bit. And then it just continued on its upward trend. So that that's an that's a very likely scenario here is that what we're seeing now is the um, the dip caused by the announcement of it. But then once that fades from consciousness, essentially, uh, we could see, you know, something else impacting oil prices to cause it to go up. So, for example, another thing that's pushing oil prices down a bit is concern over the lockdowns that are going on in China and that this might affect Chinese demand. But say, those lockdowns are ended in a week or two. We could see the price of oil shoot back up, and you know there's no new announcement to to bring that down. So what you're saying is essentially this strategic petroleum reserve move could be unwise in that it takes away at a time when there's no oil shortage, it takes away a, a very important uh, safeguard in the event that there does get, become oil shortages one day, and its impact on pricing could be minimal. Exactly. And that's a real fear here is mm. the um, is, is that if we do go through with this release. Now, remember, the, the oil has to be purchased by someone. So it's entirely possible that, you know, refiners may buy a bunch of oil now and refine it into gasoline and say, OK, we're, we're ready for the summer driving season. We don't we're, we're not going to need any more. And they just stop buying it. Uh, and that's happened before. In fact, during um, in 1991, during the Gulf War, the um, the, the oil companies and, and the refineries didn't even buy all the oil that was being offered from the SPR because they didn't feel it was needed. Um, and wow. so if, if they do uh, go through and buy all of this oil, then there will be a concern. When are we going to replenish this? Apparently, mm. the plan is that when oil gets below $80 a barrel, that um, the government will start to replenish it. But who knows when that may be? And so we could be leaving ourselves in a situation where uh, our, our strategic reserves are perilously low. Mm. And if there is an incident, for example, say there's a hurricane. Say there's a huge hurricane, uh, you know, in um, in August or September that takes out a lot of our own oil production, say from the Gulf of Mexico. And this this happened last year, and we need to release oil from our SPR to compensate for that, but we don't have it because we sold it off earlier. Uh, talking with Dr. Ellen Wald, she's the author of the book Saudi Inc: The Arabian Pursuit of Profit and Power. One of the things that we've heard a little bit, and it's difficult to know through the prism of rumors and anonymous sources how much is true and how much is fact, is that the Biden administration is working to get domestic energy producers who Joe Biden hasn't had the best relationship with historically uh, to produce more. He's also trying to get OPEC uh, to produce more. Uh, What do we know about both of those efforts and what's the response been from both OPEC and domestic energy producers? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. So from OPEC, the response has basically been we're really not interested in 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 fulfilling your request. Is is that Um, because they benefit from higher gas price or higher oil prices or is there some other reason? 
Well, they definitely do benefit from the higher oil prices. However, um, the, the truth is that oil prices were plenty high, so they're they're benefiting, you know, no matter what. They don't necessarily need oil to be at $120 a barrel to benefit any more than when it was at 80 or 90. In fact, a lot of producers would actually prefer oil to be, say, in the 70 to 80 dollar a barrel range because then um, they're not concerned about demand, what we call demand destruction, where mm. the price of oil is just too high. And so um, people are not buying as much oil. They're either conserving or countries that might be buying more oil or just, just not buying as much. So so that is a concern that OPEC has. Is if it gets too high, uh, that could be be bad for them. But really, what, what from OPEC's perspective, they see this as um, they don't see the problem as a matter of supply and demand. They're looking at it and they're saying, actually, the oil market is really well supplied. The reason that prices are so high is because of this geopolitical situation with Russia and Ukraine and speculation over it. And that's not something we can do anything about. This is mm. their perspective. They They say, you know, producing more oil won't they, they don't believe that that would really effectively lower the price because it's not a supply issue. There's no lack of supply. The issue is is Russia. Then there's the other issue that they face, which is that Russia is now part of this larger OPEC plus group. And so if they were to say, if, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Iraq were to say, hey, we're just going to forget about our commitments that we have with this larger group and our quotas that we have with them and produce more because the EU and the U.S. have asked us to, well, then Russia is going to look at that and say, what are we doing in this group anyway? We're out of here. And once they leave, OPEC plus as a whole loses a large part of its ability, as they see it, to influence the market because Russia is a big, important producer. Since you've mentioned Russia a few times in in the conversation about American gas prices and worldwide oil prices, it was a somewhat controversial decision by the president to decide to prohibit the imports of Russian oil. Some other countries, even countries in Europe that are more dependent on Russian oil, are either talking about doing that same thing or already moving in that direction. India and China, they're happy to take any Russian oil that Americans aren't buying what has the impact on American gas prices been of the decision to prohibit the import of Russian oil? Yeah, so um, the, the big issue there in the United States is, is what I see it as a, a largely symbolic move because the U.S. was not a big importer of Russian energy products as a whole. So it's very easy to say we're, we're banning this because not that many, you know, not that much Russian oil or, or, or gas was really part of the American market. In fact, um, we really hadn't imported much of any Russian oil uh, until uh, there was this, this hurricane uh, last year that took out some production in the Gulf. And so uh, some refineries started to import Russian um, oil as a way to make up for the loss of that. So um, it's, I, I think it really doesn't have a big impact on the United States and was largely a symbolic move. Europe, on the other hand, is, is a different question because they, and especially Germany, are highly dependent on Russian energy products, um, oil, natural gas, and even coal. And so the big question is really, will they be able to, can they 
can they separate themselves from Russian energy and maintain not just their economic development, but, you know, their basic way of life? Uh, you know, are they, are, is, is Europe willing to endure power outages, extreme gasoline rationing, for example, in, in order to sanction Russian oil? And my sense is that while they keep talking about it, the fact that they haven't gone forward with it is that they, they don't believe that their populations are ready to accept mm. these kinds of very severe measures to to take a stand against Russia. I mean, this is this it's not like this is England during the Blitz or during World War Two when people were asked to make great personal sacrifices of their own, you know, goods and, and their own lives in order to support the war effort. I don't think that this particular war really garners the same uh, effect for Europeans. I, I mentioned that the Russians are still selling to countries like India and China. Is the fact that that the Europeans, or at least some Europeans and the Americans are no longer buying that Russian oil does that mean cheaper oil prices for India and China or things staying about the same there? Exactly. And that's a really good point and is a large part of, I think, why the U.S. is now trying to pressure at least India not to buy this Russian oil, but they're they're not very successful at it. So India and, and China can basically what, – what they're doing is they're looking at – the the situation and they're saying hey we'll buy this russian oil no if nobody else is buying it but you know we want a discount and they're actually finding some pretty good discounts uh, there are reports of discounts as much as $35 off of the Brent benchmark and if oil is $120 a barrel a $35 discount is is a really good deal for these countries and India especially is at a point where its population is growing and its oil use is really growing and India has no domestic oil production. They've got to import everything. And they used to import a lot from Iran. They stopped importing from Iran because of the, the sanctions there. If you want to eliminate Russia from that too, where are they going to get mm. their oil from? And they're not willing to pay exorbitant prices for it. That's not something that their economy, uh, which is really in a much more developmental stage than, say, European or American economies can handle. So from their perspective, they see a good deal, and um, this would be very beneficial for them. The same thing goes for China, though China has had a very long-standing relationship with Russia and importing Russian oil. There's actually a direct pipeline um, between Russia and China. So um, it, China was never really in a position where it was going to stop. Um, they're likely to import more oil at good prices. Oil because of our uh, disputes with Maduro and Hugo Chavez, uh, there was some speculation that we were going to turn to Venezuela in an effort to make up any shortfall that existed with the decrease of Russian energy supply. Keeping in mind what you said, that Russian oil was already a, a fairly small part of the American energy market, what are you hearing about the prospects of buying Venezuelan oil to kind of meet that uh, stopgap? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it did seem like this was something the Biden administration was really interested in. They sent a delegation to Venezuela to talk with um, to talk with Maduro about this, and even um, Maduro seemed to be very excited about the possibility. Um, and some of the um, and a lot of people thought that Maduro's uh, releasing of some. Uh, Chevron officials, uh, excuse me, not Chevron, uh, Citgo officials that they had kind of been been holding hostage, uh, American um, Citgo officials, was a sign that the sanctions would um, would soon be ended. Uh, that hasn't happened. Part of the issue with Venezuela is that uh, its oil industry is really uh, in, in the pits. It, it has mm. suffered tremendously, and not just because of U.S. sanctions. It was suffering long before that because of terrible mismanagement, a lack of money. Uh, and so the, the oil production in, in Venezuela was at about 2 million barrels a day, and, and they were, were able to export um, you know, a, a decent amount. But it really tumbled because they didn't have any money for parts. Uh, they weren't able to, you know, keep paying the oil workers, and a lot of things fell into disrepair. And the thing about Venezuelan oil at this point is, it's not an easy or cheap oil to extract. It's a very thick kind of mm. like the tar sands type oil. And so in order to get it out of the ground and to get to transport it, they have to um, combine it with uh, other substances that basically make it able to flow through pipelines. Uh, they, they use things called upgraders to do it, and those upgraders are completely in disrepair. So the Venezuelan oil industry needs a lot of investment in order to get back to where it was. So even if the U.S. was to end sanctions on Venezuela and start buying its oil again, it's not the panacea that that people were, were thinking it might be simply because their oil industry just can't produce that much more. I know you've been very generous with your time and you have a three-week-old whose attention we're competing with for you. A couple other quick questions, though, because it's so rare that I get to tap into someone with your expertise. We've seen, we know, we remember those of us that are in the New York area that lived through the lockdowns of two years ago, what that did to oil prices because all of a sudden nobody was driving to work. Now, we're seeing in Shanghai and China uh, broad COVID-related lockdowns there. Some other countries are talking about bringing down, uh, bringing back lockdowns. I'm wondering what, impri- what impact will that have on American gas prices? Is there an opportunity to enjoy the lower prices because Chinese workers are not driving? Well, there is because oil is a commodity. And so while, you know, in America, our gas prices generally are based on the price of WTI, which is the American benchmark, that is also still traded globally. And ever since the U.S. became, uh, started to export oil again, that that started um, right at the end of the Obama administration was when uh, we started being able to export our oil. That really made WTI more of a, a global um, a global benchmark. And so, um, yes, essentially, if there are lockdowns in China and that causes the price of oil uh, to go down globally, that will definitely provide some respite for Americans and uh, American gasoline prices, not as much as if we had, say, global lockdowns uh, or lockdowns in the United States, not that I'm promoting that as a way sure. to bring down gas prices, but it will definitely have an effect if it does affect global oil prices. 
you wrote the book Saudi Inc. Every president, I think, since Nixon has promised to make uh, America less dependent on foreign oil. Now, at times in our history, it seems like we've gotten pretty close. The fracking and domestic energy production that took place, particularly under Presidents Obama and Trump, it would seem that we were a lot less dependent on Saudi oil, but it seemed like whoever the president is, Democrat, Republican, old, young, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the pedigree, no matter the style, they're all so eager to have a good relationship with Saudi Arabia in spite of what's going on within their own country in terms of violations of human rights, in spite of some very serious, in my view, credible uh, accusations about things like uh, sponsoring terrorism or being very close to terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Why have the Saudis been able to maintain uh, such incredible influence over American policymakers? Is it due just to the fact that they're such an oil-rich country, or is there more to it? I think um, a large part of it does have to do not just with the fact that they're an oil-rich country, but the fact that really the Saudis alone of any other oil producer in the world today have the ability to ramp up production or shut down production, um, not at a moment's notice, but in a, in a way that's very, uh, that, that can happen very quickly. They have more what we call spare capacity than anyone else because they can produce, and we've seen them actually, produce 12 million barrels of oil per day, which is way more than anybody else in the world is capable of producing. And yet, they don't. So right now they're they're below that. They're they're far below that. In fact, that number. And so simply because they have that ability to ramp up oil production as they desire, gives them much more leverage over the oil market than any other country. So even if the United States, say right now in the U.S., we're producing in the 11 million barrel range, but we do know that we have produced upwards of 13 million barrels a day. The problem is that our oil industry is not centralized in a way that one person can can give the order mm. to increase production like they can in Saudi Arabia. And uh, and so I would say that, that that definitely gives them a lot of influence uh, over um, a lot of policy considerations that they might not have if they didn't have that capacity. You wrote an article for The Hill in which you went through a few of the ways that Biden could reduce spiking consumer costs in spite of what we've talked about here, uh, tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, asking the Saudis to produce more, asking domestic energy producers to drill more. What could the Biden administration actually do to help ease the burden at the pump? Yeah, I think one of the important things that they really could do is not just ask U.S. domestic producers to produce more, but really reach out in cooperation with them and gain a better understanding of what's keeping American production at these kind of in this, you know, 11 million barrel kind of we're like stuck in this this stasis part and say, okay, what is actually needed to get production moving and what is it that the federal government can do to assist that. And I do think that there is there is a fair amount that the federal government could do to make oil producers feel like they can shell out that, that money, those capital expenses to produce more 
um, because they will be supported in this decision. This is something that producers are not willing to do for a variety of reasons, but one of those is that they really have very little confidence that the government isn't just going to institute some new regulation that will, you know, basically make it very expensive or almost impossible for them to keep producing. And if they had some kind of assurance from the government about the the regulations, uh, they might feel more confident in you know, in in spending money to expand production, and I think there there is a lot that the mm. government could do to make American producers feel like uh, to to feel confidence and to not feel so much uncertainty, uh, and and to really produce more. Well, uh, let's hope so. Fingers crossed. By the way, do you think if people are tired of paying sixty, seventy, seventy five dollars to fill up their gas tank? Uh, what is your forecast for where the future of American energy prices are going? Should people think, uh, just forgetting about the environmental impact, and I'm not diminishing it, but putting aside the environmental impact, just from a dollars and cents perspective, should people look to make the transition to things like electric cars or hybrids if their only concern is dollars and cents? Yeah, that's, that's a really good um, good question. And the issue, I think, really comes down to um, each individual family's calculus over what, what makes sense for them. Because electric vehicles, and especially hy- hybrid vehicles, I do think are probably one of the best ways you can um, maintain the kind of certainty that you want out of a vehicle, but also um, pay less at the pump. The problem is these cars are very expensive still, and a a lot of people just can't afford to buy them. Uh, With electric vehicles, they're also still quite expensive, and with an electric vehicle, you suffer other issues like range and and range anxiety. Um, The fact is that uh, for a lot of people, an electric vehicle does not make sense because it just does not have the same range as an internal combustion vehicle, and instead of going to the pump where in five or ten minutes you can, yes, spend $60, but you can fill up your tank with gasoline and continue on, if you have an electric vehicle, you've got to sit for 30, 40-plus mm. minutes to recharge it. Uh, so even if it doesn't cost that much, you're paying in time. Plus, if you're charging your electric vehicle at your home, in your home outlet, you are going to be paying for that electricity. And right. electricity prices in the United States, uh, if you haven't looked at your utility bill recently, you should, are going up, and there's no indication that they're going to come down. So even if it's not paying the same amount, you're still paying to charge that car. And so these are these are decisions that families will have to really look hard at. You can't assume that an EV or a hybrid will absolutely save you money um, if it's not going to perform uh, the, the things you need it to perform. Say you need to drive 200 miles a day, you know, that may not be the right vehicle for you. Ellen, I learned so much from reading you, uh, hearing you on radio, uh, seeing you on television. To be able to uh, ask my questions to you directly is a a real treat. Thank you so much for the time this morning. Good luck with the baby. I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Ellen Wald. Uh, She's the author of the book Saudi Inc., The Arabian Pursuit of Profit and Power. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. 
Talk Radio 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So yesterday, you know, I was at my mom's for Palm Sunday, and it was really just just four of us. It was my wife and I, my wife and me, um, my mother and her longtime companion. And, um, you know, so she gets food for about 20 or 30 people. That's her thing. There's no stopping her now. I I do the same thing when I have people over, but uh, it's just it's the nature of the beast. So. She was trying to get me food to take home yesterday and or to take to work. And I took two items. One was this um, this Easter bread that had a, 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 a colored Easter egg right in the middle of the bread. And the bread itself was in the shape of a bunny rabbit. It's kind of kind of cool. So I brought that in. People have been eating that. Now, the other thing uh, that I knew was going to go over big here. I didn't have any of these, but my wife did. And they looked great. She got these strawberry shortcake cupcakes, but as I was taking it here yesterday, I guess they they fell over in my car or whatever the situation was. So all the frosting ended up on the top of the box, and so most of the frosting was off the cupcakes. So they look all dilapidated now, and I, I put it out yesterday. But I was just in the kitchen, and um, they're still in there. There's only one left. So people have been eating them. But at this point, I think maybe we should throw it away because it's been – I don't think anyone's refrigerated that frosting or anything in a day. But they were quite good, and I'm glad people were were eating them, and uh, they didn't let the the appearance of them – actually dissuade them. 800-848-9222. Gary's in Jersey City. Hello, Gary. Yeah, hi, Frank. Listen, uh, you got another Biden spokesperson on there. You know why the prices who's, are high who's when that? I'm drilling. All right. Well, that's what you took from that? You think Ellen Wald is a, a Biden spokesperson? Sure sounds like it. So when she explained how foolish it was uh, for and ineffective it would be for the president to tap into the Strategic P- Petroleum Reserve... What about that comment did you think made her a Biden spokesperson? Not that particularly. I mean, that's not a good idea. Right. Okay. So so if she was a Biden spokesperson, wouldn't she be defending Biden's policies? Are you changing the subject, Frank? No. Uh, The reason that the prices are so high. I'm responding to what you said. Yes. Okay. The reason that the prices are so high is the onerous restrictions that Biden has put on the oil companies. He cut the XL pipeline. He can't drill on federal lands, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Well, thank you, Gary. Actually, look, I do think um, it was probably a mistake to do what he did with the XL pipeline, but 
um, he actually has approved a lot of drilling on federal lands. In some cases, I think it was more than President Trump approved in that point in his administration. I'll double-check that. Until next hour, your Influence Council user. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. All right, we're going to discuss Disney in just a minute, but just a quick follow-up to um, the what I was reciting from memory. Uh, yes, I am correct. Uh, President Biden did approve hundreds more public land drilling permits than Donald Trump did at this point in his administration. The Biden administration has approved nearly 1,000 more oil and gra- gas drilling permits on public lands than the uh, Trump administration did. And because of that, the Biden administration has actually been attacked by some of these environmental groups, including uh, Accountable.us. This is what Kyle Herrig, their president, said. Of all the environmental issues where President Biden could be surpassing Trump, handing out nearly a thousand more leases to drill on public lands is not even on the list. Just last month, the Biden administration was bragging about making progress to conserve 30 percent of our nation's land and water. These new permit numbers fly in the face of that critical goal. The public lands leasing program has been ripe for reform for decades. If only the president would finally act. Yes, Politico reported the Biden Interior Department approved nearly 900 more permits to drill on public land in 2021 than the Trump administration had in its first year in office. That's what I remembered. Uh, that's according to uh, Politico. Many of the drilling permits are in New Mexico. Now, here's what's interesting. By November of 2021, the Biden administration had already approved more oil and gas drilling permits than the Trump administration did annually for three years. So it's true that Biden campaigned on pledging to end oil and uh, gas leasing on federal lands, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it. So, But as you heard from Ellen Wald, and that's why I'm so curious why you chose to focus on that um, to the to the caller, his name escapes me at the moment, but it's not a supply issue. There's plenty of oil. It's being driven up by speculators. So it'll be interesting. All right. um, I want to talk about the Disney situation. I know a lot of you have probably been following this, at least to some extent. And there's a different um, there's a different take I have than what a lot of people have. Now, the Reader's Digest version, if you haven't been following this Disney controversy, is there are really two threads to this story. The first thread is Florida's parental rights in education bill, which its critics call the don't say gay bill. The most controversial part 
of that legislation bans all classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity from kindergarten through third grade, and some instruction later on if it's, quote, in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. It also requires schools to tell parents if their child is seeking school counseling. So um, the bill's passage was an important moment for Disney, given the deep ties that they have to Florida. The Orlando theme park alone employs some 80,000 workers. It's also a major political lobbyist in the state. It donated $4.8 million to Florida lawmakers in the 2020 cycle, 80% of which went to Republicans. But Disney has often lobbied for and against bills Democrats support or oppose, which left many Democrats surprised and upset when Disney fomented very little public opposition to this legislation as it made its way to DeSantis's desk. It also left many Disney workers who take pride in the company's LGBTQ-friendly culture enraged at the CEO. So this resulted in several internal company protests, staff walkouts at the park, which culminated in the CEO sending a note to Disney workers. He told them, The corporate statements do little to change minds or outcomes, and the company was reassessing its political donations. He then called Governor DeSantis to voice his opposition, and when that didn't work, he paused all Disney donations to Florida politicians. He then told workers, I missed the mark in this case, but am an ally you can count on. DeSantis responded by calling Disney woke and pledging there was zero chance he wouldn't sign the bill. He signed it. A few days later. Now, in the midst of this whole controversy, a second thread emerged. In a company-wide Zoom call, Carrie Burke, the president of Disney's general entertainment content, said that as the mother, quote, as the mother of two queer children, she intended to ramp up queer visibility in Disney productions. She expressed a desire to have more Disney characters that are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, uh, questioning, intersex, and asexual. Disney's website, meanwhile, promised that uh, 50% of regular and recurring characters across Disney would come from underrepresented groups. Another employee spoke in the meeting about her not-at-all-secret gay agenda as an executive producer where she gets to add queerness to some animated shows that she directs. And uh, Burke's comments and Ravenel's comments, along with the pledge on the website, were elevated by a conservative activist, Christopher Rufo, who added allegations that Disney employees had an insidious record of sex crimes, sparking a campaign to boycott Disney in conservative circles. Many parents expressed fear that Disney was trying to indoctrinate their children. So as a result of these two controversies, a lot of the time has been spent talking about Disney and its response to the so-called Don't Say Gay bill and Rufo's allegations about Disney and the push to boycott the company. So I'm not going to go through everything that the right is saying because that was not even... Not even a sliver of it. Not going to go through everything the left is saying. But um, 
if you look, the Oxford definition for moral panic seems pertinent at the moment. A mass movement based on the false or exaggerated perception that some cultural behavior or group of people is dangerously deviant and poses a threat to society's values and interests. Um, so if you look at what's happening here, I, I think this is exposing a great deal of hypocrisy on both sides. For the last two decades, conservatives have been proudly fighting for the right of corporations to have a larger influence in politics. And now some people are insisting that Governor DeSantis trying to push, punish Disney economically is inappropriate. Conservatives a lot of the time hammer the left about cancel culture, and they're trying to cancel, of all things, Disney. None of what Disney has been doing is actually that big of a deal. Christopher Rufo, the conservative activist, um, who does a lot of good work, actually, he seems to be driving most of this conversation. He also seems to be veering further and further into hackers every day. This was illustrated by his most recent viral tweet, alleging that Disney has had employees arrested for child sex crimes in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. In other words, at least once a year for the past decade. Now, I guess that's supposed to be some kind of proof that Disney is coming for your children. Now, when I saw that, I thought, how foolish is that? Disney employs 190,000 people. A stark reality in America is that among any group of 190,000 people, Many of them are going to be criminals, and some of them are going to commit sex crimes. Now, I'd be curious if you did the same analysis for Walmart or police officers or college athletes or any other major group of people that exists in the hundreds of thousands. So um, that being said, I think DeSantis's response to this is pretty interesting. Governor DeSantis is apparently signaling support for stripping Disney of self-governing status. He indicated they have this 55-year-old special status that allows the entertainment company to essentially operate as an independent government around its Orlando area theme park. Um, Now, Disney... He's saying Disney's alienated a lot of people. And so the political influence they're used to wielding, I think, has dissipated. So the question is, why would you want to have special privileges in the law? And I don't think we should. So understand what the story was here. And I guess I was unaware of the full extent to which Disney was a government within a government. DeSantis's remarks follow this uh, a revelation that some... Republican state lawmakers are considering repealing a 1967 state law that established the Reedy Creek Improvement District, giving Disney the power to establish its own government in central Florida. Uh, One of the state legislators that sponsored this legislation, he said that... um, If Disney wants to embrace woke ideology, it seems fitting that they should be regulated by Orange County. Now, 
the thing that surprised me about this whole thing is why would any state allow, I mean, we know the answer is money, but I'll finish the rhetorical question anyway. Why would any state allow a corporation to essentially become its own government within that state? I don't think that's appropriate anywhere. So while, I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't love the idea of cancel culture because you don't like what a corporation is doing. I don't like the idea of corporations acting as governments either. So I would say, putting aside this whole Disney thing, I mean, with the whole uh, debate over the so-called don't say gay bill, I would say that this should have been removed a long time ago. What is Disney going to do? Leave Florida? Where are you going to go to start your own government within a government? I don't think that that is appropriate for any state to allow this kind of power to a private corporation at all. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. So, again, my point is, I want to be clear, I think their their special status should be stripped away, but I don't think it should have anything to do with them wanting to put more gay characters in their movies or because they want to stop saying boys and girls or anything like that. They should have to follow the same laws as any other corporation. They shouldn't get a special carve-out that allows them to act as their own police force and their own everything no they got to live by the same laws passed by democratically elected legislatures that every other person in corporation of florida does so that's my take tell me yours 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-wabc jim is in upstate new york hello jim Hi, Frank. I want to comment on what your previous guest was talking about about the gas and oil. Sure. And how that it's such a huge, you know, um, national concern right now. The price of you know, I live up see. I went through the fracking boom up there. I lived in Pennsylvania at the time, and people don't realize that I listen. I listened to a a geologist, petrochemical, petro engineer one time. Oil is almost like an infinite resource that's produced by the core of the earth. It pulls up in certain areas. And we have such an unlimited amount here in the United States between the back end, the Permian, upstate New York, you have the Marcellus Shale, which is gas, but beneath that is the Utica Shale, which is oil. And um, we just have this infinite amount, but there's so many different factors that play into it. Saudi Arabia has a low cost of operations. Mm-hmm. They can make money at $12 a barrel. The United States, last I heard, we need at least $50 a barrel for our companies to just turn a profit. So... When they ramped up production, they did it to crush our – and they they let it be known. They did it to crush our fracking industry because they didn't like one of their largest customers producing their own oil, you know. And as far as, like, um, when Biden first came into office, his first day he was just attacking everything that Trump did. That pipeline wasn't even in service, so it didn't really affect us, you know, immediately. But – that pipeline, if Canada wasn't going to pipe it to us, they were going to pipe it to their port and sell it to China. They're going to sell it somewhere. Also, Warren Buffett is a large investor in a, in a rail system that handles a lot of the oil from Canada. Mm. And he's a, large, he's a large Democratic donor. So so many different factors people don't realize. Interesting. It's such a national security 
issue right now. And just every day, look at look at you know gas. You know, I I I had to rent a Penske truck to buy and sell some equipment. My truck was down. It cost a little Pepsi truck was $115 to fill up the other day, you know. And fuel, I'm in trucking. Yeah, this, I'm in a tractor trailer right now. Try eight to $900 a day. How does that drive, that drive up costs of goods? Oh, you know, no, uh, absolutely. And all that, you know? Absolutely. And people don't realize what a national security concern, you know, oil and gas and energy is. Well, I mean, yeah, it's no, just, it's it's just so- a great point, Jim, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to spend so much time talking with Dr. Wald about it, because uh, she does have a thorough understanding of what's driving the prices in the energy markets. And I wanted to, you know, all these thro- terms get thrown around. I wanted to explain them a little bit and get some analysis about where we're going with uh, with respect to some of these things. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank. Uh, as far as the Disney thing, this is the way I'm looking at it. Right. So apparently, from what I understand, just from what you you were saying, when Disney was deciding to build their park. Right. That's why they, they picked Florida. They, yes. Right. Because Florida gave them that, you know, that freedom. So to pull it, I mean, to pull it away, it's like you're breaking the deal. I mean, and now they're stuck there because they already built. I don't know. I mean, I understand that it's weird that they have their own thing going, but. To me, you made a deal. You got to stick with the deal. You know, Chris, I I, I get that. I I get that. And I I see exactly what you mean. And um, in some ways, it's the whole Buffalo Bills public subsidies for their stadium argument all over again, only magnified by 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 uh, thousands. Because, uh, you know, but why should Ron DeSantis be bound by an agreement that a governor in 1967 made. He had nothing to do with that decision. That, that, I, I guess, but, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, I just, to me, it's like, that was the that was the deal. And, like, they didn't have a time. They should have put a time frame on it or something back when they did it. Yeah, I guess the, whoever, you know, the guy, whoever was the governor and, and back then... Should have thought about it. Well, I mean, this goes on all the time. You know, you know, Madison Square Garden, unless something has changed recently, Madison Square Garden doesn't pay any property taxes in New York because that's the deal they made at a time where the city was really struggling and the state was really struggling. That's the deal they made to stay in New York uh, is they got a deal for no property taxes. So I I don't blame the corporation, um, whether it's Disney or Madison Square Garden or the bills. I blame the politicians that gave them that deal. Right, but like, if, let's say I make a deal with somebody. If I make a deal, I, I got a good, great deal, and that's why I did what I did because I was getting that great deal. And now some time passed, and now the deal is going to get yanked out from under me. I don't think that's right either. A deal's a deal in my book, but whatever. Look, Chris, uh, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Uh, Unfortunately, that does happen pretty regularly. Thanks for the call, Chris. Hey, you know, I, I was wondering who ate that dilapidated cupcake. It was Curtis. Curtis just texted me. He said, no, 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 don't throw away that cupcake. I ate the other ones. I mean, of course, there's a spelling error here. What else do you expect from Curtis typing it? 4 a.m. I ate the others Monday morning, save for me for Friday morning. All right, Curtis, I will put that in the refrigerator for you, uh, which is getting awfully crowded, awfully crowded. And I um, crashed and burned. We have nine. We have um, a new batch of egg salad coming tomorrow. 
I believe. So that's going to be exciting. Paul is on Staten Island. Paul, hello. Hey, good morning, Frank. Listen, basically, uh, the thing with Disney wanting to be its own government, you have to abide by the law of the land. And it's like um, the radical Muslims, they wanted to implement Sharia law on American soil. Those aren't our laws. Whatever the law of the land is, that's what they should abide by. It's ludicrous that a, a corporation like that wants to be its own government. There's reasons why they want to do that. Well, now, I, I certainly agree with you, Paul. But what do you say to what Chris said? That, um, look, this is the deal that Florida made with Disney to attract um, billions in revenue to the state, hundreds of thousands of jobs every year, full-time jobs, and a lot of money in uh, in tax revenue, you know, that go to the state's coffers. There's a reason Florida, I believe Florida has no income tax. There's a reason for that. It's because mm-hmm. of all the money that Disney is generating. So, I, look, I agree with you. I'm playing devil's advocate here. But, yeah, I think they should renege on the deal. Because yeah, I but, think Disney's going, turning evil, in my opinion. Well, <laughs> again, putting aside the evil portion of it, and thanks for the call, Paul. <laughs> get back to work um putting aside the evil portion of it why should ron DeSantis or anybody in florida be bound by this agreement that was made in 1967 and why should any state give a corporation the right to be essentially its own government within a government i find that reprehensible i could see that happening in russia where oligarchs basically are the government to some extent. I could see it happening in Somalia, which is a warlord's libertarian paradise. That should not happen in Florida. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to disagree. Uh, That's 1-800-848-WABC. Coming up, we're going to do the uh, $1,000 minute. Uh, Tommy's in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. Well, look, I I, uh, I would have to look at this legislation um, that they passed creating the Reedy Creek Improvement Act. But I don't know that this legislation spells out that this was supposed to be uh, permanent. Well, I, I, I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to look into it further. Thank you for the call, Tommy. But um, so the Reedy Creek Improvement District is a semi-private special purpose government. I, I don't even like the way that sounds, special purpose government. Whenever I hear that term, special purpose, I always think of the movie The Jerk and Steve Martin's special purpose. Um, it's controlled by Disney. It was created in 1967 when the governor at that time Claude Kirk, a Republican, signed this into law, authorizing it to regulate land use, enforce building codes, treat wastewater, control drainage, maintain utilities, and provide fire protection. I can't even fathom that a state would do this. Oh, no, no, no. You don't have to abide by the state restrictions on zoning or treating wastewater or the building codes or the fire codes. You got it. You got it. Go ahead. Do your thing. Wow. I had no... Look, I knew Disney had a lot of influence there, but I thought it was mostly due to spreading around millions of dollars in lobbying and campaign contributions. I had no idea that they could ignore zoning laws and fire codes. 
and wastewater laws. So it's it's governed by a 19 mem it's uh it's governed by a board of supervisors that's selected by its 19 landowners. The biggest and most influential of them is Disney World. The district has the authority to tax the land and use the revenue to provide essential public services and operate and maintain all public roads and bridges. Now, doesn't that bother anybody else that public roads and bridges are being operated by a private company? Bothers me. Such private governments aren't uncommon in Florida. Hmm. It has more than 600 of these community development districts that manage and pay for infrastructure in new communities. If this 1967 law is repealed, Disney World's property will fall under the control of Orange and Osceola counties. So there you have it. Apparently, they don't mind this in Florida. They like these little fiefdoms that private businesses can have. But there's nothing like this. Nothing as big as the one that Disney controls. I have a major problem with this. And it has nothing to do with Disney being too woke. I don't like corporate businesses acting as uh, governments, personally. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Norman is in Tuxedo Park. Hello, Norman. Tuxedo. Thank you. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Yeah, something hit me hard when you talked about the oil and you interchanged two terms. Yes, it's true. Biden issued more leases. Leases are not the same as the ability to drill because there are regulations by the government. So they, they don't have the right to drill because they don't have the permits. So you're interchanging two words, it, permits and leases. All right. Well, that's fair. Look, I, I don't I don't pretend to be an expert in this, which is why that I invited Ellen Wald on. And I thought her her uh, points about the things that Biden could do to lower gas costs um, uh, were, are very. Yeah, are, were very helpful. Um, you yeah. know, go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't but yeah, she, she was great. Your interview was great. You're a great interviewer. But the point afterwards about leases is, is is different. Yes, Biden issued more leases, but Trump had more oil flow. Got it. Okay, well, look, I'm going to take your word for it, Norman, because uh, there's, 11 million, there's 11 million barrels a day under Trump, and now there's 8 million barrels a day. And yeah. that just shut up the price of oil. I, I got you, That's Norman. So well, again, my defense is that I have no idea what I'm talking about. So nobody should listen to me. That's why I have experts on that do have some idea what they're talking about. But um, uh, I think um, her point was, I found very convincing, that it's not a supply problem. I think it's a everything else problem. It's a speculation problem. It's a, a an inflation problem. It is a lack of regulatory certainty for domestic oil and gas producers problem. It's a... Uh, Ukraine-Russia tension rhetorical problem. Um, And it's a supply chain problem. So um, I don't think it's a oil supply problem. B is in New Hampshire. Hello, B. How you doing? Well, I'd like to think I'm doing pretty well. 
You sound like you are. Um, first-time listener, first-time caller. Wow, welcome aboard. Um, How did you discover our little program this early I in the I just found your channel looking for a good news station. Wonderful. Well, I, I, yeah. uh, I'm sorry we couldn't find a, new good, new, a good news station, but I'm glad you found us instead. No, no, I'm glad I found you too. Um, two points. First one, supply chain issues. Um, open the pipeline. We didn't have problems when the pipeline was open. Um, they're saying he created more jobs than the last four Republican presidents combined. I'd like to see how. I don't believe that's true. I believe that's because of the end of the pandemic, people going back to work, jobs being um, put out for people who are desperate for employees. But um, along the Disney lines, I wonder what their part in that agreement was. They agreed to provide wholesome entertainment to everybody that would be enjoyed by all. What was their part in that agreement that gave them such a sweet deal back then? Well, I mean, I think it was basically just spreading money around. They they were, were doing what they've been doing for the last 50 years, which is giving a lot of money to politicians and spending a lot of money on lobbying. And look. Uh, the people in Florida like not having an income tax and the revenue that that theme park generates for Florida and the jobs uh, that that generates for Florida is in part what allows Florida to operate without an income tax. So, I, I mean, I, I get that the state gets a lot here. I just think that it's uh, an inappropriate agreement. B, thank you for listening. I hope you make it a regular habit. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. Hey, good morning, Frank. Love the show. Thanks. So uh, maybe Disney should take over to George Washington Bridge because then it wouldn't be so bumpy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I mean, if a, a, a private company can do things better and more efficiently than the bureaucracy, then maybe it's not such a bad idea. I mean, Disney, have you ever been to Disney? It's clean. It's efficient. They thought things through when they built the place. I don't go for their woke politics, but uh, the, the park, I mean, they might as well just put a sign up, leave all your money right here, because everything costs so much, but uh, I took my grandkids and their parents a couple of years ago, I think I spent $8,000 there. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I've been there a couple of times as an adult, and you're right, it does cost a fortune. Um, well, look, and Jay, with, go ahead. Yeah, well, with the oil thing, it's I think... But the thing you keyed in on was the uncertainty, the regulatory uncertainty right. that the government is so unfriendly towards energy. And everybody wants to have a light bulb on. Everybody wants to be able to get from point A to point B, whether it's an electric car or, or you know, whatever. Um, but you still have to make the electricity somewhere. Yeah, well, and exactly. That's the point that... Uh that Ellen made about why electric cars are not the panacea that a lot of people think it is. Jay, thank you. Uh, as far as, well, you know, I, again, we're running late here. I want to squeeze in one call on this, and then we'll move on to the $1,000 minute. I may come back to this. Marianne is in Indiana. Hello, Marianne. Hello. Uh, I am a retiree from a state university, and universities run their uh, uh, corporation, like corporations like uh, their own government. Yeah, well, I have a major problem with that, too. I look at what, um, you know, what uh, a university like where I went, NYU, makes in their endowment regularly, and I don't necessarily think that it's right that they don't have to pay anything in taxes uh, to their no, to the local authorities. No. They're not profit either. Yeah, no, no exactly. Marion, thanks for the call. Hey, um, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000 straight ahead. If you want to... 
If you want to take a stab at answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller right now. And if you are, you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Get them all right. You're $1,000 richer. Straight ahead. WABC. If you ever want to know what music we play on this show, you can just join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And we post the musical selections each and every morning. So if you're ever curious, that's where we post it. Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. It's also meant to be a discussion group about this show, so if you ever want to participate in the discussion, that's the spot uh, to do it in. All right, it's about time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, John in Cleveland. Hello, John. Hello. John, does it bother you when my colleague Curtis Lewa refers to Cleveland as the mistake by the lake? Not at all. It does not? No. Even though that's your your town, your home. Really? Yeah, I, I still love it, but, uh, I mean, it's sort of true sometimes. All right. Wow. Very good. All right. Um, uh, John, have you heard this uh, contest before? Yes. Okay, so you're you're an old pro. Um, you get an answer right. Uh, we're going to just move on to the next one, and uh, we'll keep going until you get one wrong. Ready to go? Okay, I'll give uh, it a shot. All right, the timer will begin after I ask the first question. On which holiday do you go trick-or-treating? Halloween. Which famous ocean liner sank on her first voyage in 1912? Titanic. What is a scientist who studies rocks called? Geologist. Name an actor who has played Superman. Clark Kent. No, uh, unfortunately, um, Clark Kent is a character. He's not. A, he's not an actor. So, I mean, you could have said um, George Reeve. Uh, yeah. you, you could have said uh, Christopher Reeve. You could have said um, 
uh, Brandon Ralph. You could send uh, Henry Cavill. You could send Tom Welling, uh, Kirk Allen, Ryan Driller, John Krasinski. Uh, really, any number of folks. But I'm sorry you didn't win, John, but you seem like a great guy. So stay on hold, and we're going to give you a consolation prize. I think we're still giving out T-shirts this week. And I hope you wear it proudly around the mistake by the lake, Cleveland. I, um, you know, I like I, I like that it rhymed, and I I started calling Cleveland the mistake by the lake, and then I met some people from Cleveland, and they were really hurt by that, so I stopped saying it. But um, I'm glad John's not bothered by it. So John, give Molly your information if you would, please. Hang on. All right, it's no secret we have a crime problem in this city, in this state, in this country. And it's only getting worse. I hate to say it. It's only getting worse. You know, Eric Adams ran in the primary and the general election largely on a platform of improving crime and the crime problem. And it's worse than before he was elected. So um, one of the people that addressed this yesterday, I guess, what's today? Today is Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. So I guess he addressed this Monday. On um, MSNBC's Morning Joe program was Al not so Sharpton. Well, I, I apparently need a new moniker for him because with every appearance, he appears to be getting even more, even even sharper. So he was on with Joe Scarborough, Joe Scarborough, Scarborough country. Um, he used to do a show here. You remember that? He used to be on middays. He replaced Curtis. I was producing Curtis's show at 10 a.m. And then he they moved Curtis strictly to evenings, and they you know replaced him with Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. Boy, was that show a train wreck. I enjoyed listening to it because it was such a train wreck, but it was it was something. It was something. Uh, and anyway... And and then they left the show and they claimed that they were retooling the show and that they would be back. Well, I think it's been about uh, 13 years. They have not been back. So um, Al Sharpton, who hosts a show on MSNBC as well, was on with Joe Scarborough on Monday. And he slammed the approach by Washington, D.C. elites in reacting to rising crime. I want you to listen to these comments and then, you know, I think you need to think to yourself, if you're a Republican, if Donald Trump doesn't run in 2024, you guys might want to nominate Al Sharpton because he just made a better case against the defund the police movement than I've heard a lot of other people make. This is Al Sharpton Monday on uh, Morning Joe. They're losing people of color because they really don't get the people of color's life. If you are living in a city, in a neighborhood that is inundated with crime and you act like that is not an issue, you've already lost me. That is an issue. Yes, we must deal with policing. I've been out front of that. But you cannot ignore when 12-year-old kids who somebody's niece and neighbor is killed and you act like that's a non-issue because you're too elitist to live on the ground. We don't want to be manipulated by right-wing elitist billionaires or by left-wing guys that don't understand our life on the ground that is living in 
in fear of crime that is yeah. living as a result of inflation that is that is killing us. Many parts of this country, we need gas to go to work. These beltway elitists that these limousine liberals here in New York don't live in the real world. And blacks have to and browns have to deal with the real world every day. And every we don't sit in crowded day. subways day. reading left wing or right wing propaganda. Right. There is not a syllable that Al Sharpton said there that I disagree with. And by the way, if you were unclear who he was referring to as the they, meaning they are losing support from minorities, people of color, as he says it. He's talking about Democrats. He's saying the reason that Democrats are losing support from minorities is because they didn't understand what it was like to live a life like those dealing with crime, rising inflation, and record high gas prices. Amen, Al Sharpton. So um, I think he's exactly right. And I would love to hear others say the same thing. Uh, 800-848-WABC. I'm going to link to this on um, my Facebook page if you want to watch the the whole clip or read more of what Sharpton had to say, but I thought he was right on the money. Another fella that I thought was uh, right on the money was the former New York City police commissioner. I, I have to invite him on the show. I, I, I just, I've been reading his new book and um, it's quite good. I mean, it's not really new anymore. It's maybe about eight months old. But Bill Bratton, former New York City police commissioner under both Rudy Giuliani and Bill de Blasio, he was, so if you want to watch that Sharpton video, it's facebook.com slash Moranofan. He was on the Cats Roundtable with John Katzmatidis on Sunday, and he's talking about what New York is experiencing right now with crime. This is our 77 WABC clip of the day, uh, courtesy of the Cats Roundtable, which you can hear every Sunday morning, 8 to 10. I'm on there for the first half hour. It's worth listening just to hear me as well. But the, the real reason is to listen to all these news-making guests. And this interview with Bratton did make a ton of news. This is what Commissioner Bratton told John. Well, John, as the famous Yankee catcher Yogi Berra once said, uh, deja vu all over again. Uh, what's happening in America today, 2022, reminds me very much of what was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. In this country and in New York, uh, a rise in crime, a rise in disorder, and a lot of despair and fear about it because it seems like it's just going up and up and uh, nothing seems to be working against it. Now, he talked about what's happening now in terms of crime measures with his own expectations on this front. Fortunately, we're nowhere near the numbers that we had back then, but the trending is awful. New York, for example, uh, our city just reported the other day that uh, for the third month in a row, uh, overall crime is up by over 40%. I never in my lifetime expected to ever see numbers like that for New York City. I actually predicted for most of the last 25 years it would never go up again. But boy, was I wrong. And finally, Commissioner Bratton adds... And I tell our local politicians, there's eight and a half million uh, New Yorkers that want to feel safe, and there's only 3,000 criminals. Why aren't we putting the 3,000 criminals away? John, you're hitting the nail on the head, not only here in New York, but around the country. There is a great reluctance to uh, recognize that in our midst are some very bad people. And the uh, cause of our current crime problem, our current crime rise, is political. 
It is uh, the idea that so many of the legislators, governors, mayors around the country and in Washington just are much more focused on uh, the rights of defendants and less focused on the rights of the victims. And we've seen this horrific uh, breakdown of the criminal justice system where at one time prosecutors worked closely with police. Now they spend uh, more time ignoring them. We have that around the country, the uh, the George Soros uh, prosecutors in city after city who refuse to do anything about uh, quality of life crime. The thing that people see every day that makes them fearful, street prostitution, graffiti, drug selling on the corners, aggressive begging, uh, homelessness out of control. The shame of this is that uh, we got this so right in the 90s and in New York City right up through 2018, but then politicians screwed it up. So in terms of, but who elects the politicians? The voters. So we basically have uh, nobody to blame but ourselves. Well, you know, Bratton's right, but he's also wrong. Because um, the voters are a victim of a poor political system, as I've chronicled before. We need political reform to give the voters more power. If you live in in a gerrymandered district, right, and you have the politicians choosing the voters instead of the other way around, then you're almost powerless. If you have elections where there's no competition, where there's only one candidate on the ballot, what are you supposed to do? If the determinative election in one community is the primary of the Democratic Party and you're not a Democrat, you have no meaningful say. That's not the voters' fault. So when Bratton says we have nobody to blame but ourselves, he's right and he's wrong because we have to reform the very political structure that enables things like this to happen. But uh, that's my two cents. Let me hear yours. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, let me say hello to Jeff in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Frank. I thought I was going to go the whole night without a signism, but you did one unknowingly. <laughs> you presented Al Sharpton in Bizarro World. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, the Bizarro World, if you're not a Seinfeld fan or a Superman I fan, that was the that was a universe where everything was backwards. And there was this Bizarro Superman who did the opposite of, of everything Superman do, did. He said um, goodbye when he arrived. He said hello when he left. And all sorts of things of that nature. So, um, all right. By the way, you know who's going to be on the show tomorrow? Um, we have Marlena Shivo is going to be back uh, tomorrow. She's in New Jersey. So we're going to talk about this New Jersey situation. I'm not sure if we're going to have a panel of other folks for one of our midnight panel discussions or if it's uh, if it'll just be Marlena. We'll see. I'm going to work on that after the show. And I believe uh, that uh, the former state editor of the New York Post, a guy that you used to hear on this station quite a bit, uh, Fred Dicker is going to be on the show tomorrow as well, because now that the petitions have been uh, filed, they Andrew Cuomo is, at least for now, not running for governor as a Democrat. So he could still run third party. But uh, I'll talk with Fred Dicker about that. See, Fred is interesting because he was someone that was such a big Cuomo fan, such a Cuomo cheerleader throughout his tenure as attorney general and the first maybe two years, maybe three years of his gubernatorial reign, and then turned squarely against Cuomo 
He was going to write a biography, an authorized biography about Cuomo. And Cuomo used to go on his radio show. That was the only radio show Cuomo would go on. And then all of a sudden, Fred got wise to Cuomo's act. So we'll get into that with Fred, among other things, tomorrow. If you have any suggestions for questions, uh, you can email me, uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank, what's going on? Uh, You got to put the onus on the people. You know, gerrymanders or whatever, when they, when we have 20 years in New York City of uh, just about, you know, comparative bliss compared to what goes on when Democrats are in power, you know, how moronic are the voters in New York? Well, look... um Thanks, Mike. I don't want to repeat all the stuff I've said about the need for term limits and gerrymandering and then an end to gerrymandering and nonpartisan elections and um, proportional representation and um, direct election of judges and uh, real campaign finance reform, not this boondoggle that we have, which is a politician's welfare program in New York City with this bizarre campaign matching funds program, which has been a disaster in New York City and is now going to be replicated for the uh, for the whole state of New York and ranked choice voting and so forth. But um, there are so many hurdles to the voters having any real power. By the time the voters get to vote, the system, the system of the status quo, has already made its decision. And again, I'm running a little short on time now. I won't go into all the reasons why that's the case, but we will revisit that in the future. I did the last time uh, Ray Kelly made some similar remarks. We went through how the voters are in some respects powerless. And look, should citizens be more engaged? 100%. And To go back to my conversation with Scott Ritter earlier, they need to be more well-informed of international affairs as well. But at some point, the voters are acting rationally because they vote one way and their agenda doesn't get enacted. And you think, oh, okay, I vote this way, I vote that way, I vote this way, and still what I want doesn't seem to change. Maybe I shouldn't spend my time and energy worrying about civic affairs. Now, that's wrong. It's a flawed premise. Maybe I'll spend that time doing things I enjoy, spending time with my family, uh, watching television, going to an amusement park, playing ball. If the time and energy that I'm spending paying attention to political affairs isn't resulting in any change, then maybe I should spend that time elsewhere. Again, I'm not endorsing that premise. I do the opposite of that. In fact, I spend too much time focusing on this stuff, but you can understand the mindset of a voter that does that. That's why we need really political reform to unlock the power of the voters. I'm hopeful that once we empower the voters, they'll want to become better educated about what's going on. That's why I'm so passionate about political reform, because political reform is really the key to everything else. More sensible criminal justice legislation, uh, cost of living, whatever the case may be. Political reform is the key to everything else. Uh, 15 seconds of fame. 
in a moment. We're going to give you an opportunity to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. 1-800-848-WABC. We're not screening the calls for content. Be as wacky as you want to be. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. WABC. This is great. I love this song. My thanks to Stevie G and uh, who are they? Stevie G and the Destroyers and the Tiger Maca Band. They may need a new name, but they are very talented. All right, without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Russ is in New Village. Yes. How come you give uh, radio time to Al Sharpton, that rat? You don't give radio time to people that got censored, like Michael Savage or Lou Dobbs or anybody, because it's a radio cartel. You should have censored everybody. So. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, there was a man who worked as a custodian cleaning latrines at uh, Penn Station for 25 years without taking a vacation. His co-workers told him to go to Atlantic City and walk on the boardwalk to relax. When he returned, they asked him how he enjoyed it. He said he fainted from the fresh air. Not bad. Cheech in Howard Beach. I'd like to wish General Eric Adams a speedy recovery from covid I guess those booster shots didn't work out too good. Rodney in Stanford. Hey, Frank, uh, my girlfriend was so fat, when she put on high heels, she struck oil. (laughs) Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, I understand there might be a bit of a baby formula shortage, so here are some options. Either get Carmine on solid food, or you might have to start producing. Gary on Staten Island. Uh, The Pope. Pope Francis has called for a peace truce in the Ukraine. Yes, that's it. Neil on Staten Island. Yes, the show's success is built on the hard work of Molly and Matt. Happy Easter and Passover to all. Chris and the Catskills. Term limits in my county were passed by the guy who beat me 12 years. County executive, county controller county legislators he's fighting against pilot tax breaks with industrial development association go tom swazi vote june 28th democratic primary for governor steve in brooklyn crime problems never going to be solved until politicians admit that the bail reform act is all about not putting black males in jail and finally steve on staten island I'm glad we were able to get that in. Um, that slams the lid on things for today. Hey, Sid is not a moron, but he will be heard insane. on the Bernie and Sid show from 6 to 10. Hey, you know who their first guest is going to be this morning? My brother, Joe Borelli, my frequent ping pong partner. And if you call in to Bernie and Sid today, ask him how I beat him twice on Saturday. Twice. Beat me zero games. 
beat him twice. Uh, Deb Valentine is next, though, with the uh, WABC Early News. It's a show not to be missed. I'll be back uh, tomorrow at 1 a.m. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Good day.